Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello. Okay, <laughs> okay, welcome to Magic Without Fears, Luxa. Shall I call you Luxa? Is that the that's your name? That is my preferred name. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm Frater RC, and welcome to my little Hermetic podcast. I have to start off by saying I love your podcast. Oh, um, thank you so much. The the Lux Luxa Cult. It's just Luxa Cult. The Luxa Cult podcast. Yes, that is yeah, correct. And it is, yes. it is very good. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. And, and yeah. I've, such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm very honored to have you. And um, you do have to tell your brother for me that I think he has a fucking rad name. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I you, will guys, tell him. you guys have a wonderful dynamic. I love the episode um, where you, you guys talk, explained chaos magic to him and talked about that. It must be amazing to have a brother that you can dialogue like that with. Oh, yeah. No, it's really cool. Like we have a a great time together. Um, we actually make another podcast about history. Um, he's really a history buff and I want to learn more about it. So it's a really fun project. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll definitely check that out, but you yeah, guys... it's called ad hoc history. It's not the history podcast you wanted. It's the history podcast you deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> that feels very appropriate for the world these days. <laughs> Like it's not the world we wanted, but it might be the world we deserve. <laughs> you know, that's a, I'm, I'm now history. steeped in existential dread. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the good news is, I don't know. There might be other worlds, or this uh, just might be a phase. Maybe. Maybe, you know, for all the dispensationalism and end times and eschatological views we have every hundred years or even every 10 years or every election cycle, maybe, um, it's possible that our existence is really just barely begun. And, you know, we're going to morph into uh, transdimensional aliens and then sure. come back from the future. There's like also the thinking saying. that, 
there's also the thinking that, you know, if reality is a sort of interaction between the observer and the observed, then there's infinite shades of that too then, right? Yeah. I was actually just saying to someone I was chatting with in, in, in Aberdeen, Scotland of all places, that about the is a famous Lon Milo Duquette thing about, you know, it's all in your head, magic's all in your head, you just don't know how big your head is. And really I've 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 always liked Lon, of course. Lon's awesome and, and a great magician. But there's that 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 sentence, that phrase he has has been divisive, especially with the the competing spirit models and psychological models of of interpreting these things. But really, when you look at the science, I I think based on my very pathetic understanding of physics, but my absolute obsession with it, <laughs> um, I think he actually his his sentence is neither right nor wrong but what it indicates is something that we're only beginning to be able to even consider studying which is that a sort of perhaps ontological interaction between our consciousness and reality uh, entirely I, I don't know i'm not a scientist but you are <laughs> I don't know about that. I w- was pretty tempted when you asked me for my bio to just say I'm a professional weirdo. <laughs> but, um, I think that is interesting, though, and I don't know that there that those two things m- need be mutually exclusive, though, either. Like I think that from a meta, more, more meta perspective, we could say that this spirit model and the psychological model, like you can find a lot of reconciliation there, depending on how you choose to like kind of frame that, I guess, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I am not here to make any truth claims, though. So. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't actually figure out how to access the link for the bio, so I haven't read it. So I know even less about you than you imagined. Oh, okay. Well, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, but you did a you did have you did a biology degree, so you're a biologist in a sense, which I think is fascinating. I, I, I'd love to talk with people with science degrees, any kind of science degrees, or about the occult, because they seem to many uh, casual observers so contradictory and impossible. Just like, you know, we would be surprised if there was a lot of academics who were flat earthers. And I remember this documentary when the flat earthers were asked, are there any teachers or even high school teachers or professors who are in, your, in, the, in the flat earth community? And their response was, shockingly, no. But that definitely ha- proves the point about you know the control of of the of the educated class by the you know mechanisms that are keeping us ignorant of reality. Yes, that's what point that proves, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> like, are there any teachers in your movement? They're like, it's weird, but there isn't. It's like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I like what you said about occultism and science, though, because I think that if we like look a little bit closer, we'll see that those two things are sort of like inextricably linked. Um, I feel like, you know, you can like find all these different examples in history where, you know, scientists were also occultists like Isaac Newton um, or even more recently, somebody like Jack Parsons. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much fun was Strange Angel? Right. Oh gosh, so good. Yes, was, I'm, no, I'm fascinated I, with him. He's a fascinating I, character. It could have been. They could have definitely had more magic, but at the same time, with Hollywood, the more magic you do, the more chances there are that you're going to fuck it up and uh, piss us off. So maybe less is more. 
Oh yeah, you know I actually haven't seen the movie. I read the book though, but yeah. Oh, no, oh, cool. I was talking about the but show. Yeah. yeah, the the show okay. that did two seasons. The reason it got canceled in the third season, in my opinion, and I've talked to some of my friends in in the biz because I'm I'm in Vancouver, right? So we're we're called mm-hmm. Hollywood North. There's a lot of shit filmed here and <laughs> and stuff like so. You know, my friends are on things like Sabrina's and we're in the magicians and all that stuff. And uh, they never know the source material, which is always sad. And that's that's why it comes across on the show. It's like, why didn't they get this right? Or when they have the Golden Dawn in the show, it's like, why don't they at least make fun of the things that are validly good to make fun of? Like, there's way better ways to make fun of it than just pretending it was this or that that it wasn't. Um, so they're they're often quite ignorant. <clears throat> What would you make fun of the Golden Dawn? I just want to stop you right there. I'm curious. <laughs> oh. Um, well, well, well. <laughs> That's actually a trickier question. Than Is I, it a co- I, mean. I, I think the costumes are pretty low-hanging fruit. Not that they're not fun. Oh, like, don't get me wrong. I love yeah. a good costume. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny. And that, that never even occurred to me, even when I first encountered them as a kid and, and saw them. And I've thought about that a lot. And I think, I think it was, I think the reason, I think I instantly recognized that they were serving a purpose and because I was so, so deep into astral work and, and deep states of trance meditation for so many years from like age seven onward, being in a transcendental meditation Maharishi family. So, you know, initiated in a ceremony at age seven and uh, then it just goes gets more intense from that. So I was so used to it. When I saw the GD tools and symbolism, the bright colors, I just instantly realized that these were to awaken and have potency on the on the astral and psychical planes. So in it, the, when I first heard that people found them funny or or antique and comical, it that that was very shocking to me. I was astounded. I was like, "What? In what world could that?" Po-? And then it's like, "Oh, <laughs> well, you don't understand the purpose it serves, right? If you if, so, if you see a hammer, you might think that's an odd thing if you don't know what it's meant to do." Yeah, definitely. And I think that it can still be funny and be all those things too, right? Like, yeah. totally. <laughs> Yeah, but they're like I uh, by the end of this podcast, I promise I'll come up with some brilliant things that you could make fun of the Golden Dawn for. I generally just don't do that, right? I mean, part of the actual vow is to never, uh, never ridicule or profane what's sacred in another's eyes. But this is sacred in my eyes, so I guess that means I can actually ridicule it. Oh, okay, and I mean, gosh, yes, I don't <laughs> want to get tangled in semantics either. I don't mean to ridicule or oh, no, little. No. I'm just trying to, you know, I think it's good to to keep I'm, it light when you're I'm, considering I'm just, this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I'm finding loophole. I found a loophole in the vow, right? So I can't mock what's sacred to others. But if it's sacred <laughs> to me, I should be able to mock it. Sure, right? it's definitely. Like, it's like certain pejorative words that only, like, you know, I can call myself a cracker or a honky. But, you know, not everyone else could or should. Yeah. And I, so and you, make, you make fun of your own thing. Yeah, no, totally. And then there's the thing, too, where it's like, well, maybe, like, is that, like, do we need to still have those words? Maybe I don't know, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's another question, isn't it? I mean, yeah. your 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 discussion, your your two hour episode on chaos magic with with your brother and your selection of quotes and sources to reference from everything from Douglas Adams to Austin Osmond Spar was excellent. Was great. It was so, and you guys have such a great uh, chemistry. The banter and the joviality was very uh, made it very entertaining. Oh, you thank know. you. Yeah, no, yeah. I really wanted to provide like a good just sort of like background to Chaos Magic in those first couple episodes before like getting into it with all the interviews so that people could have some like context as to what the heck we were talking about. So yeah, that was, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
So here's, okay, here's an easy one that I've said before, but maybe you've not heard it. You could definitely make fun of the Golden Dawn for, um, you know, being run by, uh, I, theoretically, he might have been a, you know, closeted gay guy who was really into uh, dressing up, as we well know. And, you know, maybe Moina was his, his beard and maybe she was too gay as well. It would definitely make sense. be a one explanation as to why they, they ditched London and all their people and went to Paris. Of course they could have gone to Paris just for all the Rosicrucianism and deep occult roots in that city. And the, the Bibliotheca Arsenal where he, you know, found the Abramelin and all that, but yeah. And, and then he caused the schism. He schismed his own order because, uh, Annie Horniman cut him off after basically giving him about two, three million dollars over 10 years and funding his entire frivolous life of research and playing dress up and, you know, biking around Paris with a kilt on and, you know, uh, drinking a lot and, and partying a lot. You know, I mean that and sounds then, pretty then, rad. Then, I'm not going to fault yeah, him for right? that, I mean, or like, or for like you know not coming out as being gay in old school London because like I mean even like later on like look what they did to touring right like it wasn't like oh you know the society wasn't like yeah. uh, forward thinking enough for that well, to he would be have gone like to jail. safe. You know, um, Oscar Wilde almost died in hard labor camp for being gay, and that was the exact same time period. Oscar Wilde's wife actually joined the Golden Dawn while her husband, I believe, was in jail. I think that's the time at which she joined. Yeah. So I think in many ways the Golden Dawn was a haven for uh, alternative and subculture people that couldn't find a place and would have been actually jailed or killed in mainstream society. So it was it provided that in a really remarkable way, I think. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I think that I've never considered that context for it before, and I think that you're definitely right. And I think that that's probably true of a lot of, like, you know, occult societies and stuff from... You know, a lot of times people that come to this sort of stuff do feel like they're in some ways like marginalized or outsiders or whatever. Florence Farr, the actress, and and W.B. Yeats used their magical relationship in the Golden Dawn to generate the Irish National Theater. And, you know, Yeats's involvement in Ireland was a major influence that led to the liberation of that country. He was he became one of its first senators. His son was a senator. You know, that's uh, some powerful manifestation coming out of that group of uh, Victorian magicians. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's a great point. Yeah. Well, you know, I try to remember what what's what's remarkable about it, because I had a remarkable seven years going through the grades in it um, from age like 15 to 24. So that was a really beautiful experience in my life. But uh yeah, no one can make make fun of that stuff just like like we can ourselves. I mean, we have Kabbalistic jokes up the wazoo. The, the, <laughs> the Golden Dawn magicians and Texans are the or Texas are the best at at it. They'll be like, well, absolutely speaking, or it's <laughs> Dion. Fortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it's so groany, right? Oh, um, <laughs> or like, where's desire on the tree of life in your netzak? That's. <laughs> It's so terrible. <laughs> it like took a second for it to like yeah. sink as uh duh. That's when you have to phonetically execute just right. <laughs> you can't you can't hit it too hard or obviously otherwise it, it you know, yeah. And there's even more uh, explicit ones, but I'm far too sober for that. And I'm drinking coffee to stay awake. I had a late one last night with the this Brazilian podcast, uh, which was cool. That'll be out as soon as it's subtitled in Portuguese. Oh, very cool. That sounds exciting. 
Yeah, it was like one hour recorded, and then we talked with the listeners for like three hours after that. Good. Very cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, the Golden Dawn's influences was, was, was interesting, but yeah, you know, he, he caused this, the schism, like Crowley didn't cause the schism in even the slightest way. Uh, Mathers caused it because he was cut off financially and got all, and expelled the woman, you know, his fellow adept for cutting him off financially. And, uh, Yates and the rest of them were like, no, that's not, that's not going down. And yeah, that's, that's pretty that's uncool, right? <laughs> yeah, it's super douchey. And like, you know, all because he, you know, he, but the fact that, you know, he was living this fabulous life, biking around Paris as Comte de Glenstray in a kilt and uh, all that. Yeah. You can see in, in magicians the competing uh, struggle of, of their sort of earthly life and personality with the, the whatever divine mission they feel called to by their higher or true self or will, right? Yes, I think that that's definitely true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that that's, we all have this kind of like, I guess you could say dual nature or whatever. If you, I don't know, actually, like I said, I'm not here to make truth claims. That's a common way that people like to contextualize things though. Yeah. And you know, my theory uh, about uh, SPAR and the origin of chaos magic is, that uh, Spare represented uh, common practices within uh, magical communities, especially the inner order of the Golden Dawn. And the influence of what we call chaos magic today is actually just sort of a reinterpreted rebranding of techniques that were used by adepts quite pervasively, especially if you study the inner order teachings of like the flying rules and other premises of magic that were used and far less, less ritualistic than the preliminary work you do for the first, say, 10, 10 years or so with uh, the more ceremonial stuff. So I think that's something that th- that might be a missing piece in the lineage of chaos magic, sh- showing evidence of at least the methodologies and techniques going back before we realized they, they did. Okay. Very interesting. Too. It's yeah, a theory. No. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I, could, I guess I could see that, you know, I, I don't see any reason why that couldn't have happened. Right. But I mean, it's interesting too. Like when we think about like chaos magic, like, um, is it a set of techniques or is it like more of like a coherent, like, you know, philosophy of, about how to use those techniques, right? Like, it's, I feel like it gets kind of sticky too, because I don't really think you can say that chaos mag- magic is just about the techniques. Like, I would say that um, there's a, well, or maybe you could say that and it would still be accurate, but I I'm would not like an to, expert on it. Yeah. <laughs> I would add <laughs> that it's, you know, um, in informing the use of those techniques is a sort of philosophy behind it about, um, the sort of universality of the principles that like make magic work basically, I guess would be one way to say it. Yeah, no, well, if it definitely does that, um, breaks it down to those, those components and, uh, yeah, does it some, some, some chaos magicians, I think do it too much and some don't, you know, <laughs> I'm a big, uh, Phil Hine was my introduction to chaos magic and I, I didn't really get into it seriously until after, uh, the, my golden dawn years, um, and then I took took to it, you know, a lot integrated a lot of it quite quite happily into my uh, fusions of druidic fairy magic and experiments with entheogens. Okay, very cool. What was your first magical experience? Oh gosh, well, that's kind of an interesting question, right? Like, because in terms of like how will we contextualize this? Like, I think I will go ahead and say that like 
I don't know about my first magical like experience, but I, I can definitely remember the first like magical operation I conducted. Okay. Um, which was, well, I mean, it's possible I might have unintentionally, but like in terms of like thinking about magic is like intentionally doing this act of will to have a result. If we want to use that definition, um, I would say that like, it was probably when I was, I think around like 11 or 12 and I had gotten my hands on a copy of Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft, which I, uh, you know, hid carefully in my room yes, so my mom wouldn't find do. it. <laughs> um, she was, I knew she would be cool with like the tarot cards. She actually brought, she, like she bought me a tarot deck and she was totally cool with that. But there was just something about that book and the the pictures on the cover that I just knew she was not going to be cool with, but I was into. So like, yeah. um, and it's so funny. I actually asked her about this a couple of years ago and she confirmed my suspicions that she would not have been okay and might have taken the book away from me. So Always good to trust your instinct, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that was that was wise. Um, I don't know that book myself, but um, yeah, I was more a Scott Cunningham kid back in the early '90s, and that was that was fun. You know, that was nice. So, what was the operation that you? It was a sort of like, it was kind of like a self initiation thing. Um, things were like very hectic in my life at the time. Um, it was just like a really chaotic period. And I, you know, I think that a lot of people do sort of come to the like, you know, this path of alternative spirituality or maybe any spirituality out of a place of like um, really like looking for a new thing that's not there. Like you, there's nothing in your current tool set that is helping you confront the situation you find yourself in so you it necessitates like looking for a broader tool set which I think you know these practices can offer so yes it was basically like a thing about like affirming that I did have control over um the situation in some way I I think I like wrote myself a note that says like I have power and I burned it you know like which is a, a very very mm, simple nice. thing but like you know also a very um, important affirmation to, to give yourself if you're going to be uh, setting out on this type of a path, I suppose. Well, it's funny when you, when you, when you talk to like uh, child, child psychics who are being trained, they'll tell you that quite commonly that how, it's like, how do you do that? They're, and they'll state that they, they make a statement of intention uh, either out loud or just quietly to, to bring uh, like, you like, give me my power, show me my power, or like fill me with my power. They say something just like that. And it causes a click. Like interesting. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's uh, especially some of the some of the feats they're recorded doing are quite are quite remarkable. I, I, I'm sure there's some scammers out there that are that are fake, but some are some are not. Yeah, interesting. I'm not really familiar with this topic very much. I mean, parapsychology is an interest of mine, but I haven't <clears> like gotten too far into the research of it. I've, I've read Dan, Dean Radin's book, uh, Real Magic, which was great. Was it? I recommend that. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought he did a really good job of um, displaying the like statistic, the statistical reality of some of these phenomena. Okay, maybe I should have given give him a second chance. I, I tried to get into him at one point, but something turned me off. I don't remember what, though. Hmm. You know, that's the benefit of age and weed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Sometimes I read stuff and I'm just like, what What? Did, what was that? Ew. Um, well, yeah. If it's important, 
it'll come back. And if they're not going to use it, then why know it? Who knows? Exactly. I don't know. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm an Aquarius though. I hate, I hate losing track of thoughts or things, but I I've learned that it's better if I do, you know, take my ginkgo every day. But if you can't remember something, you probably didn't matter. Yeah. Who I'm, knows? I'm a Pisces, but I have a lot of Aquarius in my chart. So I guess I maybe get that. I don't know. Oh, wonderful. That must be a fun combination. Oh, yeah. It's like air and water. It's like a storm. It's really fun. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> what house is your Pisces in? Um, I don't know. I could look at my chart though if you want to get into it. This is I'm I'm actually just learning about astrology now. I've not really like gotten too far into the study of it. I do think it's interesting. I like this idea. Um, you know, I think it was on my show. You had Tyler Firth on your show too. Um the Yeah. Yeah, and I heard him say, Oh, I think it was on my show that he said this somewhere, um, that reality rhymes with itself. Right. And I think that that's a great way to think about like, you know, this, this kind of stuff. Um, let's see here. Uh, it is in the fifth house for me, Pisces. Mm. Yeah. Astrology, you'll, I think you'll find that it, the nice thing about it is like the more you learn, it, it's always useful. The more you learn and even having, uh, you know, you don't need to know a lot for that, for a little bit of information is quite useful as well, you know, just understanding how the, the planets and signs interact in different houses and learning the squares and, and, and trines, all that's pretty, pretty straightforward and, and simple, but it really does make a difference to interpreting things. It's quite interesting. Yeah, totally. And I think one thing that I have noticed about it, and so even if you're somebody that like thinks it's total malarkey or whatever, and it's just nothing. I do think that there is some merit to it, even assuming that, because I think that it does give people a sort of like tool to use to kind of communicate ideas about the way that they think about things or why they are the way they are. Like, I think it does give people sort of this useful tool for opening up about how they contextualize things as like an individual, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, in high school, I noticed even, like, the most popular, chillest, coolest homie dude would still, like, spend his lunch with me to get a tarot reading or look at his chart or on a, on a school trip, like, participate in some spirit ritual in the trees at night. You know, <laughs> no one was too cool to participate. They're like, what the fuck is he doing? They're like, he's doing this. They'd be like, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> or yeah. At my birthday parties, you know, the pop, even the popular kids would sit around holding hands while I burned my new experimental incense mixture to see, you know, they were all hoping to get high, of course, but they were always shocked at feeling more than they expected given there was no drugs in the mixture. I'm kind of wondering, though, like listening to this story, like, do you think you might have also been one of the popular kids if all those kids were at your parties and stuff? It sounds to me like you're you're saying like, oh, yes, all these popular kids, but they are, it sounds like they all thought you were cool, too. So it's interesting. I'll take you in a picture on Instagram <laughs> okay. uh, of me at that time. I mean, I would put on white face makeup uh, and had long black hair and was super chubby and often described by people as an ugly someone who looked a guy who looked like an ugly girl okay <laughs> so they weren't but uh, you were still popular. popular it sounds like people were coming to your parties <laughs> i don't know they just you know i was lucky it was a waller school so kids were pretty open-minded <laughs> and uh you know it's a small school and that's the one of the benefits of small classes right you you one of the things you learn in a waller school because you're in the same class with the same people for every lesson from grade one to grade 12 
you learn the skill of having to get along with people you might not normally uh, want to, you know, and that's a good lesson for life. In life, you have to learn to just, you know, find ways of working with people sometimes, even if you don't naturally, you're not natural fits. Yeah, definitely. I, I think my experience was pretty similar with that. Like, you know, everybody in that class was like, you know, it, it would, it was like, it was a strange thing if there was like a really bad fight between two people. And it was like something that the whole kind of class sort of felt and wanted to resolve, mm. you know, like, I don't think I've um, experienced that dynamic in very many other places actually, which is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So do you mostly practice chaos magic? Um, I think that you could easily contextualize what I do as chaos magic. Um, I think that, yeah, that's a, that's a perfectly fine way of categorizing my stuff for sure. Yeah. Sometimes I think everything's chaos magic. Well, I think that again, like, I think it just depends on like your sort of like your guiding philosophy behind what you're doing. You know, like if you're, if you're like, you know, treating things as like paradigms that you're willing to step away from fully or, or like take a little what you learn from that's, that's different than like constructing like a broader, um, or like a practice that builds and builds and builds and builds and stays like, you know, you start working with the deity and you might work with that deity forever. And not saying that you can't do that with chaos magic. It's just, I think that there's just a slightly different um, philosophical approach to the actual same practices. So Mm. kind of hard to pin down, I think. And this is obviously just my own opinion. I'm sure that lots of people would disagree with me. So, yes. Well, yeah. Who are are your favorite um, influences uh, besides Phil Hine? Oh man. Well, I mean, Austin Oz and Smear is like, I mean, just yeah. looking at his art Amazing. and like, yeah, it just. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone who sees him is obsessed with him. I've never heard someone be like, yeah, I looked, looked at his work and it's not for me. I've never heard anyone say that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's just gorgeous. But I mean, like, I guess looking back in sort of like my, my history and stuff, like, although I don't think he's like a super cool dude, Carlos Castaneda was definitely a big influence on me. Like that was what. I had availability to do like when I was in my teenage years. And so my my friend group and I, we, we played around a lot with, you know, his ideas and some of this, like kind of the notion of like walking like a warrior and like all this stuff and like the lines of the world. And, and, you know, I think that it's, I think I did learn a lot from it, even like, as we know now that it's probably completely all fabricated, but (laughs) That's that might not even matter, right? It's like I don't think about, it does. Yeah. So, like uh, D- Douglas Monroe's Twenty-One Lessons of Merlin was a big influence on me when I was like thirteen, even though it's based on a on a fabricated manuscript and it's a, a co- almost complete, basically fictional narrative. It had a huge impact on me because I also loved the movie Excalibur with the charm of, of making in it. And the book had other charms of making in it. It did have the prayers of Taliesin and American and all these other things. And it really opened up my imagination to my, my place in nature and the idea that there, there's, there was things that I could, you know, harmonize myself to, to better manifest the different principles of the elements of the universe and connect with myself to it. Like those are big ideas, 
but they're ideas you want to have. And the younger, the better, in my opinion, because they're inspiring and exciting. So, uh, you know, is the, does it matter that a lot of it was made up? I don't think so. Enochian magic's made up. Mm, wow. that <laughs> Controversial words there. <laughs> in I mean, some crowds. I'm just joking. <laughs> what then, you could say, what's the difference then between something that's made up and something that's transmitted by the spirits? But if it's made up by a human, then it's made up by the human spirit. And humans are meant to be apparently very good at creating things. And the act of naming the idea of Enochian magic is this it's this language that Adam spoke. I mean, he didn't even call it Enochian. He never called it that once. That was mm -hmm. Enochian technically. It was created by the Golden Dawn as an interpretation of the angelic magic of John Dee. So, you know, and to call anything else other than you could say, if you wanted to be very pedantic and piss people off, um, that the interpretation of, of angelic magic made by John Dee is the only Enochian magic because that's what they chose to call their little thing, right? But mm -hmm. we, everyone loves the word so much, it's like, no, we're not going to buy that. We're going to call all of it Enochian magic, even though Dee never once called it that. He would call it Adamic or angelic. But the idea was that this was the language Adam used to give names to the creatures and essentially, like, you know, create part of their ontology. So... The idea is that human spirits are very good at creating and manifesting, and therefore, if something's fabricated by Douglas Munro's mind, how is that any different than something transmitted by a spirit through a crystal? Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of naming, I think, that you've just hit on is very interesting. And it reminds me of another fabricated story, although this one is not, it's a fictional story, so it's not giving any, like... It's not trying to trick us into thinking otherwise, but this is uh, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss from the King it's Killer Chronicles. my favorite novel of all really? time. Really? It yeah, is. It's the first book yeah. I actually ever read twice oh, in my, my whole life. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yes. I have <laughs> gone back to it more than that. Oh, I like no. to revisit things sometimes. <laughs> I'm not obsessive at all. But <laughs> yeah, well, I play the lute, so you can imagine. I play the eight string lute, so like, you can imagine how that affected me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. I, you know, I actually don't think that I've ever been in the same room with a lute before, but I do have a conceptual notion of what it's all about. <laughs> that's really cool. So did yeah. you play the lute before or after you started reading? Patrick I Patrick? started playing it in 2005. I, I got into, in 2005, I was living on the Aran Islands off the West coast of Ireland. And I got into the bazooki, which is uh, an Irish bazooki, which is a Greek uh, Irish modification of a Greek travel lute that was specifically designed with steel strings instead of guts to survive the frequent sea journeys in, in that area of the world, in, in the Mediterranean. And uh, they, the Irish also cut off the round back of that lute um, so, so that they could fit it uh, while holding it more, more conveniently into the tight, cramped little pub corners in which they play traditional Irish music in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And like same, same was with guitarists. They often have a style where they, they strum really hard, but they're holding the guitar almost upright. And that's a technique that's developed, but it grew out of just the fact that they didn't have enough space in the pub because they're packed in there all night long doing this stuff, right? And then from there, I branched out into like 10 string citron lute and eventually 15 and 21 string Renaissance roundback ones. But I don't have those anymore, so I haven't been able to develop on them. Yeah, so as a result, the name of the wind was like, whoa, this is awesome. My buddy gave it to me for Christmas in Ireland in 2008. And uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, he's just amazing. That. Yeah. Have you read The Slow Regard of Silent Things? 
Yeah, I've read everything he's written <laughs> yeah, me many, many times now. And I've listened like not not just re- I've read both those two epic novels, Waiting for the Third, of course, but I've read As the two epic a- novels like three, four <laughs> times each and listened to the audiobooks many times. And I've literally what, my- never listened to read or any other book twice in my life. Okay, that's cool. So my theory, and this I think is gonna be like a total like um, you know, kind of fuck Ooh. you move, which I think is dope. Like I think he's got the book pretty much done, but he's gonna wait to have it published posthumously. <laughs> well, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I, I, that, that would suck. I would like, I would, be, I would freak the fuck out if that is what he did. But um, he did write, the, he wrote all three in college. He wrote the entire trilogy in college, but the editing process must be intense mm. to, to, to have them so polished. And the language is almost like poetry. Reading them is like, slicing a hot knife through butter is just some of the most beautiful writing I've ever seen. Yeah, it really is gorgeous. And, and it like, yeah, I could see the challenges that would come with the third book because the second opened up so many more avenues that, you know, just kind of thinking about like, well, how are you going to tie all these threads together in one book, dude? Like, you're like this is like, and, it's not moving towards being done. It's moving towards like a a million book series with all these stuff, which, which is awesome. I would love to see that happen because it's such a cool world. Yeah. Part of, I mean, yeah, he can't disappoint people either. Right. Cause like the other, you don't want to, you don't want a game of Thrones that, you know, we all love mm-hmm. game of Thrones till that last episode. We're just like, Oh fuck this. But he doesn't <laughs> care. Probably. He, I think I, he I, cares a lot actually. Really? About I don't know. Whether don't know, he's known as a famous success or a famous flop. I don't know, but yeah, I don't, if I was that, if I was George R. R. Martin, I feel like I would be okay with my success, right? Like at some point, oh, like, uh, you know, and there's also this kind of question too about like, cause I do think that this happens a lot where people who enjoy the work of a creator, sometimes I think feel a little bit entitled and like, and I don't think that that's right. Like, just because you like somebody's work and you support them, like, doesn't mean that you're like entitled to like make them make more or whatever. Like, I just I, that whole kind of oh, attitude yeah. is, I think, kind of gross, and I oh, think it, it puts gross. a lot of pressure on when creators. When I see people that, yeah. ragging on Rothfuss online, be like, "Yo, he'll never finish the fucking book. He's such a such why don't a you write bastard. a book?" Then I always know? think like bitch shut up and grovel at his feet the fact that he bothered to give you anything of beauty with his or whatever like if you if you're not happy with the way this writer is doing their writing career you can start your own fucking writing career and do it your way (laughs) right like yeah i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah totally um you suffer and write and struggle for 25 years eating ramen and produce a masterpiece and you know (laughs) then you can judge I was just talking about this on my show, like this idea of like the, you know, quote, like armchair magician, right? Like the person that will gather a lot of knowledge about um, magic and occultism, but they won't like actually implement it. But a lot of times they'll like have a lot of opinions about how other people are doing it. Um, And it reminded me of like the idea of the armchair quarterback, which here in the U.S. is a football, U.S. football term (laughs) for people who watch, you know, really competent athletes. And they sit there in their like easy chairs and have all these opinions about something that they could never do. Right. Like, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm familiar with the both armchair magicians and uh, armchair quarterback <laughs> excellent i wasn't sure i know you Taxi live in canada so i wasn't sure <laughs> oh jesus well you know um i i was i i uh i i don't know those words but in the morning i'll get on my bobsled and i'll go to the the book igloo and i'll get the sheets of ice carved 
in with, you know. <laughs> I mean, yes, we assume that you're all just surviving on maple syrup and Pabst Blue Ribbon or no, that wasn't it. I don't remember. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, Molson's or something. Molson Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking um, back to those old hilarious skits. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, those were those were classic. Um, <laughs> yes. No, we're not that different from you guys. You know. It's true. I have many friends. To many, quote many my fellow Vancouverite, from... <laughs> Deadpool, we're all pink on the inside. <laughs> yes, Sorry I have many friends off. in Canada, and I love all of them. So yes, it's all good. All of them. <laughs> Well, that doesn't sound all right. of the ones. No, all of the ones who are my friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. <laughs> if you know a bunch of Canadians, there should be one at least that you don't like. Like statistically, I mean, look at our leaders just from that numbers alone. Doug Ford, uh, Trudeau. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, but you know. Yes, I can only speak for my friends. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, Rothfuss. I mean, what a what a thing, and it's a. Uh, it's, uh, do you have any theories before we move on from, from my favorite book? Any, any fan theories about what's what mm. about him? You I think know, he's going to kill, I think he's going to kill, uh, Cinder, Cinder and become the a new, the new Chandrian. See, okay. So I, I don't know. I, maybe I, my, we don't know exactly how he becomes the king killer though, right? So like my thinking is that like his rival oh, yeah. from school, Ambrose, will like become king somehow by like, you know, because he is in line in succession. I think that was mentioned in the second book. So like if it happens that way and like he ends up having a deal with him, I could see that being um, a plot element perhaps. I could also see Dena or Dina, you know, whatever alias she's choosing to use being one of the Chandarian or being controlled by them. Well, she's she's the lost daughter of of the Lackless, I think. Okay. Or is that that was Quoth's mother? No, Quoth's mother is definitely the noble Lackless oh, yes. girl that ran yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. She's definitely. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. And Dena, there was a girl that I think. Yeah, I think Dena might be connected to that. I don't um, know. Yes, I'm interested in more fan theories yeah. about this. Now. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, I've I've never gone on the fan theory page. I've never checked out the internet, what the internet thinks about any of this stuff. I just have my own ideas because it's, yeah. it's my story. The internet's not full anyone of bad ideas story. about shit, dude. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. I, um, so, yeah, I ha, you know, I, th- I think that maybe, if especially if, if Rothfuss is the kind of author that might follow, um, what's it called? Um, what's the structure, the narrative structure where it goes in and out again? Damn. Oh, fuck. I'm, the word was just on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, but I think that his story might be reflecting the Lanray story where Lanray's girl dies and then he becomes, you know, the first Chandrian and oh, all evil. Yeah, that so makes I think sense. Ambrose might kill Dana and then both will like go all like super evil scion and just like destroy everything or I don't know. I'm oh, excited yeah. to find out. I also wouldn't mind if it be, was totally understated. Like, you know, I wouldn't mind that. Yes. Well, we can't wait. Patrick Rothfuss, if you're listening, <laughs> we love your stuff. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. <laughs> I look forward to them filming the TV shows and movies here in Vancouver because Lionsgate, uh, right down the street, uh, got the contract. So they'll be doing it here. And hopefully I can get involved somehow, you know. Very cool. I heard that, that there was talk dream. of like a video game as well. They're doing, it's the biggest multimedia entertainment deal that was ever made when, when Fox lost the option through not producing. And it was a huge bidding war at Comic-Con years ago now. 
but yeah, so they, 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 he required Rothfuss required that they concurrently film and release a TV series based on like the side stuff of the world. Cause the, the stories are so sprawling and the films based on the main narrative and a multi massive multi online player world game. So you can play in the world. All at that's, the same time. Hell yeah, that's yeah, dope. I just contrast. want to mention one more thing that I remember from that book, which is hella dope, was the Yellish story knots. I just now remembered oh, that. Super and that's cool, so right? Cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 that, that, um, magic knot work is is something that's quite fascinating. I don't know much about it. Do you know much about it? Um, no, but it's a fascinating topic that is on my list of things to investigate for sure. Yeah, I'd get into it, but I still have too much like. Ogum and OM on my plate. Like that'll be doing yeah. that for the next <laughs> forever. Between Enochian and ancient OM, there's plenty to do. You can't do it all, right? That's one thing you realize when you get into the occult. I think a lot of people read a few books and feel like they know a lot, but you know, that's, there's just, too, you, you can't do it all. You have to pick and choose what you're going to do with your life, especially if you're practicing this stuff. I mean, and just, I feel like you should really just kind of like follow your instinct and your own like preferences and like what seems the coolest to you, like what gets you excited, like what gets you like, what gets you involved, you know, and that's going to be different for different people. And if something's not doing it for you, then fuck it. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, you should definitely have fun with it. Um, in my weekly classes, now that I've, we've covered a lot of basic stuff, we just decided to jump into some fun Enochian experiments, like some of the things you might do in the most preliminary sense prior to even building most of the tools, if you want to just, because I think it's good to to try out things in different ways in magic. And, and so you can experience the, the effectiveness variations, you know, mm. that's a, that kind of methodological approach, of course, is very common for us golden dawn types yeah i just um i interviewed um this dude cliff from enochiantoday.com it's a blog about enochian magic and stuff um he just got done doing this really intense like 44 day gibbafall i probably said that you did gibbafall eh yeah Yeah. and um yeah really interesting stuff if you check out his blog he has like really cool you know, write-ups of all of these different, you know, rituals and stuff and his experiences. And it's really, really beautiful. I'm going to listen to uh, that episode as soon as I finish the uh, Tyler Firth one, which I started because Tyler's awesome. Shout out Tyler Firth. And yes, Mitch, Mitch hell yeah. Arrelic. What's up, Tyler? <laughs> yeah, he's going to be on my, my next uh, roundtable, which is on the subject of Materia Magica with some other people. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah no, he's... Gonna be uh, yes, he uh, is quite Im- an impressive uh, magician for sure. I love his stuff. Yeah, he heard me say something on, he was listening to my podcast and heard me say a bunch of shit about simony. And he was, he reached out to me, he's like, <laughs> you mentioned simony. And when it comes to selling magical objects, I'd like to say a few things. Could I be on your podcast? I'm like, fuck yeah. And we had a great time. It was awesome. Yeah, I listened to that one. It was very cool. Sometimes I just say outrageous random shit that I may not clarify or make, you know, leave a little ambiguous. And I only do that not for any lack of intellectual precision, but just to uh, rile people up so I can more easily get guests without having to hunt them down. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, this, this, so this podcast is a sort of, it's information, but it's also bait. <laughs> oh yeah. It's whatever. You know, okay. it, be. You know, it depends on, uh, on whether it's a, a stoned episode, a mushroom episode, a happy hour episode, or uh, a triple espresso episode like this one is. Okay. Well, there's yes, different an styles. Epi- an episode one of my guests was bait. microdosing DMT the whole time, the whole three hours <laughs> <laughs> in a vape. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, the the dichotomy of it being, you know, informational and also a bait is it's kind of delightfully discordian. So I like that. It's kind Good. Of- yeah. I I mean, that's that's probably a bit of the KO in me coming out, right? I I I don't mind since my years in the in the GD and I finished the GD training in '99, so I've done a lot of stuff since then. It's not like you you go through the grades. And like, that's all you ever do. That's one thing I think people need to remember a golden ball magician is like, we're not only practicing one little type cross section of magic. We generally practice most things like even most golden. I, I don't think I've ever met a golden ball adept that wasn't ca- quite capable with chaos magic and even very comfortable doing druidic rites and Wiccan rites and all rites. You know, it's a, it's not a religious order at all. It's not like uh, Thelema. It's not like the OTO. It's not a lifelong membership type thing. It's like, uh, it's, it's a, it's the closest thing we have to a adult Hogwarts. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And I think that makes sense though, too. Like, I do think that one thing that is really cool about chaos magic is it's very accessible. And that's one of the reasons that I really like it. You know, I, I do think that magic is something that can be very natural and very accessible for people if they give themselves permission to do it that way. Um, Amen. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and I like how it, it, it's very focused on results as well. I like that about it. It's whereas one of the things I found with Scott Cunningham, it was the, the sort of religiosity in the, in the Wiccan path was, was, uh, it was hard for me to sort of suss out the difference between what was the worshipful aspects of it and what was the technical magical aspects. And I wasn't sure which was which and which is normal because like even, even Enochian magic is fueled by these very, very Christian prayers, right. In its traditional angelical sense as angelic magic, um, like the Gebafell and Gebafell sort of, uh, the, the, like, it's sort of like the concluding ritual. There's the 19 day ritual. I think it's 19 days that, introduce that initiates you into the practice of Enochian magic because it is a it's arguably a closed system that you have to go through that process to to really formally use though most people would probably agree that that just makes it easier and more powerful but you can do it without it so there's the 19 day in beginning ritual and you do that before you build all the tools and Gebafell you can't do until you've completed all the tools and uh, done the other one as well so there's it's it's they're two really nice uh, bookends of the system. It's quite elegant. Oh yeah. 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 Have you ever considered doing doing that that process? Oh yes, I have considered playing around with Enochian. It's been something that's been on my radar for a little while, and you know I might investigate it um, further on down the line as a possible paradigm. Pretty into what I'm doing right now, but that doesn't mean I'm not like curious about other stuff too. Yeah. Though. <laughs> Well, uh, for, uh, traditionally, I believe the uh, 19 day in, uh, initiatory working um, start is done is perf- done on traditionally on August 1st, I believe. And I'm definitely going to do it this year. And a couple other of my people are going to possibly do it as well. So I'm working Very on putting, cool. creating the book of supplications, which is quite a task, but I've got a nice book to do it in and we'll see how it goes. But I'm cool. I'm having fun doing these experiments with the group before that, because, you know, I want to can be able to have something to compare it to because this is all different. This is all quite new to me compared to the golden dawn style of Anukian magic that I was, I was trained in. Awesome. I'm kind of curious, like, you know, going through this sort of like structured and, um, you know, golden dawn style stuff, like, or not style, <laughs> literally golden dawn stuff. <laughs> like how, um, how did you like discover cast magic and how was that? Like, I'm guessing that might've been like a little bit of like a, 
was it like a shock to the system or was it like, oh, okay, I sort of no. sort of make sense or like... No, I was reading about chaos magic from since the since the early 90s. Um, I just didn't, uh, it didn't really speak to me. I was more, sp- I was more spoken to on a spiritual level by by uh, Wicca, witchcraft, and druidry, and then then getting into Donald Michael Craig, and after a few years of practicing that, uh, and I was in Amork as well. I got initiated into Amork uh, at the temple here, and then I went down to San Jose to the Rosicrucian Park when I was 15, and then later that year uh, tried to get into the Golden Dawn and was initiated at the end of 1996. 90, and That's cool, yeah, joining I, all of the clubs. That's very cool. Well, I was trying to find the right one. <laughs> That's what I was totally. trying to do. Yeah. Totally. I was looking for one with serious teachers who actually practiced magic and knew what they were doing. And and I couldn't find it anywhere else. I didn't find it with the reclaiming tradition that I did some lessons with and with Pat Hogan and you know, the reclaiming witch tradition in Vancouver and and you know, coming out of transcendental meditation. Just none of those things they weren't right for me. And they they weren't I was looking for a kind of a level of it, what I wanted something that felt more powerful, I guess, that felt more visceral and actual and I wasn't finding it and that could have been because of a lack of teachers I mean this, we're talking before the internet right so we had very limited access to resources and again armchair occultists were very common and that was the first thing I heard about what occultism was it was the phrase armchair occultist people hmm. who just read a bunch of occult books it's like that's the first thing I saw when I was taking out Crowley books and books about Crowley and the Victorian era from the library and uh, reading a lot about how very few people practice magic and most people are just armchair occultists. So, and it was, it was hard to find people like that. Yeah, no, I was thinking about this earlier, actually, like in terms of this armchair occultist idea, like, and, and I do think it's cool to like read books about magic and like, you know, oh, because, we need it. it's interesting and, and, you know, obviously I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't educate themselves about the topic they're interested in, but like at the same time, Okay, so if you want to learn how to cook a good meal, are you going to sit down and read a bunch of cookbooks and like then expect that you know how to cook, right? Yeah. I mean, no, you have to actually practice it to, to do it, right? Like, and it might suck the first couple times, or might not. I mean, maybe you, maybe you'll make an amazing meal the first time. I, who knows, right? But you have to actually fuck around with it in order to figure it out, right? Yeah, staring right staring at me on the bookshelf is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which beautifully illustrates the, the point you're making. That book has been recommended to me so many oh, times. And, <laughs> and the, mini, <laughs> the the British miniseries of it is excellent. You could just watch the miniseries. It's really it's visually stunning and wonderful. Okay, cool. And in the the, uh, the whole magical plot all revolves around fairies, but fairies is something very dangerous and sinister and horrifying so it's that's wonderful especially couched in the proper victorian manners and aesthetics and then you have these, <laughs> these otherworldly like interdimensional being there that's just like i don't give a shit about you like i'll i'll kill you in a second or enslave you it doesn't matter to me you mean nothing to me except what i can take from you and that was uh it's like yeah it would have been nice to maybe see a good fairies represented but that's not what the novel gives us it's quite dark Interesting. Yeah, but the theoretical magicians in it are, they're trying to make sure that no one practices magic. They don't want people to practice magic. They just want to debate their different theories and uh, make stuff up and all of that sort of thing. And you see that with people. Um, yeah, that's why we need practice. It corrects corrects theory. You know, people sure. try things out. And... I mean, yeah, I, 
I feel like a lot of these debates are, while they're interesting, it's very difficult to contextualize some of these experiences in words that are like fully communicative of the actual experience. So like, it's just, it's hard. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I just mean, wish people would spend a lot less time arguing about magic and a lot more time actually doing it. Exactly. Yeah. We should leave the explaining of it up to people who are really good at it. Like David Heimsmith is really good at it. Like when he explains, he, he just understands the, that very special dynamic of language that's technical, but also poetic and really, really does it well. Yeah. And you know, I want to give a shout out to Aiden Walker, who has a couple books out that are like, they're, everyone they're... keeps recommending him to me. Is he a good writer? Yeah. He's a really good writer. He's incredibly, um, articulate person too that like is able to bring a lot of things down to earth in a really accessible way but not a way that like diminishes the potency of them mm, nice yeah I, I will have to i definitely have I, i've had him on my list for a while one of my students is is loving him a lot and, and oh, yeah i know i would definitely check his stuff out for sure yeah and he, he's, he's sort of a, a hybrid kind of uh chaos magic right um, well, I think he has a background in chaos magic, but like the, he has his own side of like paradigm that he works in. Um, he contextualizes things in a sort of animistic sense um, and the sort of interaction between the individual and the surroundings as uh, like the field, or I might not have stated that properly, but he talks about the field as being this, like the thing that we, we interact with uh, or mm. are part of also. So like, there's this kind of like, but that that's a very like, if you don't like that framing, it's a very easy thing to sort of translate to whatever framing you like to think about things because he, he talks a lot about just like practical techniques, which are very simple and also very accessible and also very effective. So that's, it's very cool. You have any uh, favorite effective techniques you want to share speaking, speaking to an audience as a practitioner, it's always fun to share some of that stuff and encourage something people could try. Oh gosh, you know, well, like what I have found, and this is just like sort of my style, is that I like to do like really simple techniques and like get really like deep into them and sort of like find out all the lift, like different like layers to them and how they can be like built together into like a more complicated like piece of machinery, maybe. Um, but yeah, like I, I really like. I like so some of like the the what I'm doing right now like one of the things that I do every day is I do like egg magic. Um so I call I, it I, I shared a picture of <laughs> your altar with a bunch of eggs because I was yes. planning to ask you about it. <laughs> cool. I'm yes. I'm so it's... glad you brought that up. I don't know if, is it because you saw that I had shared that picture? No, it's just this oh, is like the, this, is this is one thing. This thing is like one oh. thing that I do every day. Like Tell when you ask, like you know, for the love <laughs> of God and all that's holy. <laughs> but this is a really simple thing, right? Like it's a very simple thing. It like I I, I really like to ide- like play with the idea of you know making everyday things magical. Mm, of course, and yeah. So when I do my breakfast magic, you know, like. It is, it, I am making breakfast my, for myself, but I'm also like, while I'm doing that, like I'm, I'm doing like, you know, I'll, I'll what I'll do is I, you know, I'll take a candle, I'll anoint it, I'll write a bunch of shit on it with my alphabet of desire. Um, I'll write a bunch of sigils on an egg. I'll kind of like let that stuff charge on my altar. 
sometimes there's like some other steps that I'll do depending on how squirrely I'm feeling that day or whatever is going on. Um, but that's sort of the basics of it. And then when it's all ready, I will conduct like ovomancy with the egg by like, you know, scrying in it as it cooks mm. to, with the, the candles. So it's like this, it's, it's a very, very simple thing. But when you actually look at like the different components of it, it's more complicated. But that's something that I've been finding like incredibly effective. I do think that there is something to be said for having these regular practices, even if they're very simple. Um, yeah. Because you can find a lot of depth in something, even something just as simple as like meditating for half an hour a day. Like you can find all kinds of depth in there just from like that most basic kind of shit, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, uh... But sigil magic. I mean, sigil magic is effective as fuck. So like that's like that's an easy answer. But I think I everybody know. already knows that. In, in case <laughs> anyone was... In case, in case the world was unsure about whether or not it worked, um, Grant Morrison let us know. <laughs> right? In and if you don't believe us, try it out for yourself and you will figure yeah. out the same thing. So, yes. He's on stage at Disinfo and he's just yelling at people, it works. It really works. Go do it. Do it right now. Come on, you fucking wankers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he just like went on a tear and it's you like, know, oh my God, that was amazing. The, that was the first time I had heard yeah. the, the phrase chaos magic. Because oh. I had, oh. yeah, I had read like, so I had read like, um, uh, when James I first Lee? saw that video, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was, he was uh, just a, I thought he was just a comic artist taking the piss. And then I was like, but after he kept going, I was like, oh shit, he, he really is a chaos magician. And he's telling people what he, what he actually knows. Oh, no, like, when I saw that shit, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect fucking sense. And, like, affirms a lot of the fucking things I've been wondering about. I was, it actually was, like, one of the, a very happy, I don't want to say the most happy day of my life, but it was really, like, one of those cool things where it's like, oh, fuck, other people are thinking about this shit? Like, that's awesome, you know? Like, so, yes. It is very awesome. Yeah, what are your thoughts on the widespread popularity? That's what I was going to say, actually. The reason it, I love armchair magicians so much is because if it wasn't for them and occult bibliophiles, like, they're the ones funding all these manuscript translators doing their work. They're the ones funding Stephen Skinner and all these uh, these new people every day putting out new manuscripts. Like, my, my the, the Hebrew manuscript I'm most interested in, which is on the Klepo, it still hasn't been translated. And so I sit here reading the Hebrew, but I could really use a fucking translation. That would, that would be good because, you know, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not fluent. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it'd be nice to have that if someone wouldn't mind. Um, so, sure. like, yeah, the majority of these things aren't translated. So thank God for armchair occultists who, who, uh, who uh, fund all of this stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. And no shade, no shade of people that are just academically interested or anything. Like, the only thing that I would say is that if that is the case, like, maybe don't be like a dick to other people about their, what they're actually practicing, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah. Well, Justin Sledge, Dr. Justin Sledge recently said he thinks it's a real shame and very hypocritical about how the university systems treat uh, uh, Western occult practitioners. And then, and, but, you know, so with one, you know, they'll discard Western occultists and esotericists with one hand, and then they'll run off to go do a bunch of Hatha yoga and, uh, you know, uh, Eastern esotericism, right? No one judges yeah. someone for being into Eastern mysticism if you're, and be an academic. But if you're it's like... It's not contextualized as being like a... People don't understand that there might be an actual like spiritual philosophy behind it right like yeah 
it's oh, just well, seen as like, oh, it's exercising and stress relief, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Stephen Skinner doesn't help that. He he always reminds people that magic has nothing to do with spirituality, and it's that it's a technology and spirituality something else completely. So that's going to confuse some people too, who might try and give it a pass on the grounds of spirituality. You know what I mean? Hmm. You know, because yeah, then know. they hear <laughs> Doctor Stephen Skinner be like, so should we accept your magic because it's part of your spirituality? He's like, oh, no, not at all. What? Hey, take that spirituality and go give it to Aaron Leach. He can have it. Well, I mean, <laughs> he he has a spirituality, of course, but he just doesn't consider it the same thing as his magic. It's totally unrelated in his mind, which is uh, fun. Yeah. Semantics are so sticky often, right? But, mm. like, I, yes, I, I, could, I feel like I, I agree that you don't have to necessarily take it as like quote spirituality. You don't have to label it that way. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, maybe like, you know, especially if you like to work in like the psychological model and stuff, like it's not, you don't have to say it's a spiritual quest. It's a, a set of psychological tools that you're using for self-actualization. If that makes you feel more comfortable, then cool. Fuck he, it. He, <laughs> like, yeah, he, so Skinner wouldn't agree with that at all. He also doesn't like that. He, he disregards that idea entirely. He think he sees it, entirely as working with just, you know, using technology to interact with beings that are actually out there and nothing to do with psychology. Okay. Well, yeah, I know it's, it's radical, right? He, he, it's, uh, well, it's, he challenges a few people, but I would, uh, his, his, his definition and usage of the word spirituality isn't how uh, a theological theologian would use the word. It's not how people in mystical theology would use the word. I would say that magic, his magic is de facto part of his spirituality, whether he likes it or not. Like technically if, you know, <laughs> using, using the definition that I would use of spirituality, which is just, which is after the fact, like whatever you, your spirituality is, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're dealing with spirits, like, I, I don't know. Semantics are fucking sticky. Yeah. You would think that a, a series of ritual practices defined, uh, designed to summon and command spirits might be validly included under the word spirituality. Well, you maybe know? for whatever, for whatever reason that definitely, you know, that, that label makes, maybe it's just, it, I mean, branding, you can't, we can't discount the power of branding, right? But in, as an academic and stuff, like maybe that's just not like, uh, that's just not it, the brand he's going for, right? Like, yeah. I hate to be like cynical, point. but no, no, it's great. I love it. Let's be cynical. You know, what's really funny about that? My most, so the first 10 years I was studying Kabbalah, I couldn't call it Kabbalah because no one knew the word. No one, not even like no one knew it. Well, and it's also like, I had to call it Jewish there's a lot of, yes. And there, then there's a, for the next 10 years, I couldn't tell people that I studied Kabbalah because they all knew the word all of a sudden post Madonna and thought it was ridiculous. So I'm glad yes. that that's over. And well, it's, it's a complicated topic too, because like the thing that we call Kabbalah, like in Western occultism, it's not really like thought as far as I understand it to be the same thing as was talked about a long time ago. Like this is a sort of like reconstructionist perhaps thing, or maybe not even reconstructionist, but like reimagining perhaps. I don't know. Oh, Whatever. Well, yeah. It's useful that's what shit. Her, that's doesn't what matter. Kabbalah is for sure. Like, yeah, yeah. There's, lo there's lots of forms. And even within Orthodox Judaism, there was various forms and schools of Kabbalah. Um, like mostly I practiced Abalafian, which is 13th century Kabbalah. But now I'm getting more into the Ayun school, which David Heim Smith beautifully represents and has produced a wonderful course and series of studies 
to that are just fabulous. And uh, that's a non-emanationist uh, view of reality. And he's okay. a takes a non-emanationist approach. Huh. And he's the first uh, other per, he's the first person I've ever encountered who has the that's who represents really well that the experiences I've always had as being uh, in contrast with an emanationist philosophy. Though theoretically, I think emanationism makes sense, but I. It's not been my experience ontologically. Like Interesting. In my, like uh, could you talk a little bit more? Because I'm so curious about that. Because like I've always, in my very uh, obviously a very limited experience with you know like looking at this shit. Like I, it's always had it always has been in this like sort of eminent um, context. I'm curious to hear about how that looks when it's not. Well, like I said, it's it I I it was. The reason uh, I connected so well with David Heimsmith was because he was enunciating my experiences, but my, and the theoretical frameworks I was trained and had was educated in didn't fully mesh with those experiences because I, I was trained in like you know Aristotle, Plato, and Platinian uh, emanationist theory and emanationist schools of Kabbalah. Um, so I'm just still learning how to express those experiences I've had in my, my spiritual life and practices in with the language, with a non-emanationist language. Cause it was, I didn't have that, that skill set. It's, it's a very rare one. That's that, which is, I think why it's challenging people so much, but I think the more people practice this stuff, the more they'll realize that it is a better heuristic and framework for expressing uh, rea- what reality actually is. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. I mean, because I'm to be perfectly honest, like I'm kind of into the emanation stuff. Like it's a little bit part of my paradigm right now. And so like that's so interesting. So it would take something that was pretty radically fantastic and resonated as experientially true to displace that uh w- wonderful fascination with emanations, right? <laughs> yeah, no, of course. I'm, yeah, yeah, obviously. And I, and like, I honestly believe that's what David Heimsmith uh, represents from these uh, uh, Kabbalistic schools and oral traditions that he's, uh, you know, that his teachers asked him to publish and teach. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a fabulous living tradition. I, I pe- people should check it out. Yeah. The uh, yeah yeah I don't know. I'm still in process. I'm still learning and growing and all of these fabulous <laughs> things. And, uh, yeah. Is it cool if I tell you about a large scale group working that me and some people that oh, like, I'm collaborating? That are sounds doing? awesome. Okay. So a while back in October, um, me and some others launched something called the green mushroom project. And you might have seen this, if you've seen my like Instagram or whatever, I post a lot of pictures about it, but um, this is like, so this is like, as I said, a large scale group working. Um, It's basically something that, um, well, there's a lot of different aspects to it. It was, there's like the four main like objectives of it, like are to, Actually, I have this right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the there the like four main objectives of it, like because this is sort of like the a project that we're hoping will sort of like build steam and build steam and build steam because of the 
symbolism that we've chosen. Like this is an organic kind of thing that can grow and change and live and stuff. So, but the objectives of it are to create the network of, you know, quote, green, you know, aspected magic, um, just from the context of like Peter J. Carroll's like Libra chaos system of like contextualizing green with like Venusian energy or whatever, like friendship magic. Um, so this, people can draw upon this like, you know, web of green magic for like acts of healing and re- restoration and connection and stuff. Um, and they can do that from, you know, accessing the sigil. The other thing that the second like objective is to build and strengthen the community and and like empower the people within that community. Um, we want to do this to like strengthen our position against like a lot of things, like all kinds of gross stuff that sometimes crops up in occultism, but you know, like a sort of solidarity about like, no, like some things that are happening are not okay or whatever. Like, Mm. You know, I'm sure that people can sort of read between the lines there, but like, and then also to encourage individuals within that community to like become more agentic by using powerful technologies like hyper sigils and stuff like that. Um, so it's really about like, like creating the connections for people, giving the people the tool that they might need to just like tap into a little bit of magic to just fucking get kickstart things for them creatively or like from a healing perspective Mm -hmm. Um, and then fostering this kind of like connections between us. So like we've been doing like these group workings. It's been really dope. We've been meeting every Friday too, to like light a candle at midnight and, you know, say some words together. And um, yeah, it's that we've just, um, introduced we've been working on our astral space for a while but we've just now introduced it sort of to the world by you know putting out some some recordings of us like you know kind of doing these like meditation sessions together and exploring it and so yeah there's all kinds of like really fun things going on with that project it's highly experimental um, but it's been amazing and really really fun so far and I just want if anybody is listening that is participating I just want to say thank you so much and a big shout out and fuck yeah so yes yeah, cool stuff, folks. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. Is it is uh, how how can people find out more about that? Is if they want to? Oh, okay. Well, you can listen to my show Lux Occult. Um, I usually put like a bunch of links about it in the show notes to it, so you don't have to listen to the show if you don't want to. You can just look at the show notes too. Um, we are organizing the project. On um, my friend's Discord server, um, my friends run a podcast called the Faith Blind Council podcast, and you can find the Green Mushroom Council on the Faith Blind Council podcast Discord server, where we like to organize and hang out and make dick jokes and stuff. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sounds like chaos magicians to me. (laughs) I mean, there isn't a bill. I do want to say there is a built-in dick joke with the mushroom symbology, and that is not an accident because humor is very important and an important part to, you know, social engagement. (laughs) So, yes. (laughs) Very cool. You know, you might like... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say earlier, I liked what you were saying about this kind of like... um, this energy that you were playing with, you said like this kind of like fey, like earth energy. And like when you were saying that, I 100% thought of this project. I was like, yes, this is sort of got a lot of that fucking vibe to it for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm big into fairies and fairy magic. 
always have been. People used to think I was joking about it because I'd, I'd talk about like fairy Wicca and they always just assumed like get, given, you know, that I was in the Golden Dawn or running a temple of the Golden Dawn or all of that or, you know, a, a serious academic. They always just assumed I was making jokes. But I never was. I was like, <laughs> fucking love, love fairy yeah. magic, even if it's in in the form of fairy Wicca, or you know, doing it solomonically with uh, Oberion, or you know, I'm developing the Yeats's system right now, so doing a lot of work with uh, uh, the King of the Fairies, Midir or Meter, depending on your dialect, and uh, yeah, and that's really cool. I'll be coming out with stuff on that very, very soon, and yeah. Um, they're 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 a remarkably a sort of ecstatic force, um, especially like the kings I've found in my experience. So they're uh, yeah. they're very sort of high electrical sort of feeling vibration. Like whenever they uh, whenever uh, they appear, they're it's like they're they're just uh, so yeah like they're it's almost like less stable though it could have been the operation. So I'm not I could I'll have to I'll know better when I've done more of them. But yeah, it's a yeah. The words to describe this is hard. It's it's, <laughs> it's always challenging. Always challenging. I would say, I, yeah, I would say that like this project is definitely like it's not like directly you know fae or fairy in that way, but it has like some of that vibe. I think that the symbol of the mushroom itself kind of lends itself to that very well, and and we see that in like the. the mythology and, and folklore and stuff surrounding this stuff right the fairy ring of mushrooms and all that stuff right and in um, ireland uh magic mushrooms are in irish gaelic called uh puka hats fairy hats oh, okay that's cool uh, hell yeah but like, yeah because like if we think about like what the, the fungus is or a mushroom like it is sort of like this this interesting like i, I it's almost like this kind of liminal entity it's not quite Yes. And plant, it's not quite an animal, you know, it exists above and below ground in the air with its spores, you know, in, in the ground, like thotically with its like mycelium and stuff. So like, and then there's this mushroom, which is the sort of like what binds those two things together, like the, the, the air and the sky or however you'd like to think about it. So that's another kind of cool aspect of it there. But yeah, yes, I could go on and on and on about the mushroom, a, so. a big, a big thing, a big thing for me. That's like definitely my main my main my main substance and uh i've been doing more and more experiments with it and different kinds of magic especially uh fey magic yeah there's i yeah. think they're intimately connected in entering into the she or uh, chirnanog um and in, you know encountering the irish gods specifically which is what i was doing a lot in the 90s um was doing uh you know everything starting off with writing prayers of adoration and uh drawing sigils and images of the gods and going from the prayers to uh, scryings of them and communications to commu get them to help me write invocations. And I had to compile the whole book of Celtic mysteries in the, while I was in high school. Um, and after I joined the golden dawn and was, had learned good methodologies from my teacher, uh, Frater Khan, and the other adepts of that temple to Hooty. And so, yeah. And then to, from the scryings developed, had them help me develop, uh, invocations and you know built from step by step and i noticed like the the two ajidana and the the gods of ireland they basically they became fairies they are fairies that's what fairies are fairies and gods i think are of the same sort of uh level of entity same kind of entity I, they're, they're probably aliens in fact who knows but definitely <laughs> definitely related very close in nature i found to the um 
some of the angels of the Enochian tablets and certainly related to the the gnomes, salamanders, and undines of the elemental kingdoms. I mean, these these kinds of spirits, like I mean, categorizing spirits in one way is is, is not so important, but it can have its uses in in understanding them and knowing what to expect. Yeah, sure. I mean, if it if you find it useful in your practice, then yeah, fuck yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, or I don't think you have to do it either, right? Like, yeah, no. I mean, that's a said like a chaos magician. <laughs> Damn those hierarchies! <laughs> Who needs hierarchies? Well, no. If if you're into it, then hell yeah. I don't know, but uh, yeah. We can just summer summon the archangel Michael through the divine name of Homer Simpson. And then I don't, assume you know, God form, use that to channel the God form of Bart, and there you, you go. That's some chaos I mean, for you. You could try it. I don't know. That's, oh, people do. People oh, do. I'm that sure stuff. they do. And that's cool. Yeah. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, it, give it a shot. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. That's not usually what I do because I don't connect with those things on like a strong archetypal level that I think, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't say that it couldn't be effective for somebody else, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, have you ever worked much with uh, god form techniques? Well, I do a lot of deity work, but I don't think that I probably do it in the same way as you might be familiar with, just in terms of like the um, the kind of like protocols and stuff. Maybe yeah. I don't know. That's, that's I, I'm I, I'm guessing that we could probably have a long conversation about this and sort of hash it out. But like, I will say that yes, deity work is definitely a big part of my current paradigm right now. Um, what god any gods in particular okay so it's <laughs> it's a little bit complicated but it's kind of in a weird like emanationist way thinking about this like creative force filtering down from chaos right um and you know manifesting as like these different like goddesses or like faces of a goddess this is it's very similar to what you would hear in other traditions but the way that it is easiest for me to explain to other people is in this context where it, it is this kind of like force that depending on the situation, like, or the parameters of. <sighs> I'm already like I having a hard time. Losing it. <laughs> but depending on the situation and depending on. I'm like, a magician when we need one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> when practitioners sometimes I think we get lost and we're remembering the actual experiences of doing all these things and that can be overwhelming and create a surplus of meaning that can be hard mm. to explain but an armchair magician without the surplus of experiential practice and meaning is just like just has a brain full of categories and distinctions and mm -hmm. is like that's what this is what's how you describe that and you're like okay yes good, good. okay so whatever you say <laughs> That makes sense, actually. So, yeah, if you don't have all those experiences, like, confusing you about the semantics of the words you're using, trying to describe them, because they don't quite fucking fit into any of the words. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Umberto Eco talks about that um, hermeneutic phenomenon in his uh, book, uh, Interpretation and Overinterpretation. He does a whole bit on the surplus of meaning, as well as in his doctoral thesis on the aesthetics of Thomas Aquinas. He he tackles that that subject. It's it's a fascinating aspect of interpretation uh, theory and semiotic philosophy worth uh, worth uh, exploring. Okay, sounds yeah. really cool. Fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it and it's applicable as we can see in this case. 
definitely. It's not all just theory. It's, it, it provides insight. There's a reason for universities. Don't close them all down because of, you know, Marxism's on the rise or something. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know what's, again, these, these labels about things like this is another thing. I don't know. I'm stopping myself from going on a whole rant about labels and stuff, but I, just to, to reiterate the point that yes, like I, I find um, right now for what I'm doing to deity work to be really rewarding and um, something that, you know, if you haven't done it before, see, I was not raised in like a religious context. And so having this idea of like, you know, actually believing in like, you know what I'm saying? Like it, I was never like, something that I like believed in all the way. There was always like this skepticism, which I think was, is healthy, you know, but like just sort of trying to get myself into the mindset, you know, in some way, just as like a sort of mental exercise of like, what is that like to like, to have this like devotion, to have this like sureness about it or whatever, like, and obviously not um, losing perspective of like the, the meta situation you know situationally what's actually happening is like yes i'm in this paradigm i'm doing this but like also like allowing yourself to sort of like lose yourself in it i think is an interesting like push and pull there too yeah you gotta lose yourself to the paradigm (laughs) i mean well i don't know people should practice however the fuck works for them this is just my thing (laughs) yes yeah Yeah, no that that is a that 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 ethos is one of the gifts that chaos magic brought to uh probably a uh, increasingly stale magical culture at the time that it, uh, that Phil Hine and, uh, Carol were putting out their books, you know, they were, they were definitely in, it was, it was, it was characterized the way it was, I think intentionally in reaction to the, the magical climate and milieu. Sure. I think that's fair for sure. And another thing that I like about it though, is I do think it's much more accessible to people who have been raised in a very materialistic um, you know, frame of mind because oh, you can, that's insightful. you can really look at something, you know, you can look at chaos theory, like nonlinear, you know, co- complex nonlinear dynamics. And you can say like, there are these universal traits of systems that, you know, if, if a system is complex and if it exists here in our world in Malkuth or whatever the fuck you want to call it, it behaves in this way. And so, like, in, in that, like, in that regard, like, that sort of understanding gives you, like, a little bit of a cheat code, you know, like, about how systems work, about how any system works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a great insight. Huh. You've got me thinking. We're, 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 Oh, sorry. No, 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 continue. Say more. I was just going to say, like, so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, considering things from that perspective, like, um, uh, even from an an emanationist standpoint, like, if you're the one emanating, if you're the, like, rock that's thrown into the pond and the ripples that ripple out from you, they have a greater and greater effect as they move out. But they also have a, well, they have a greater span but they have a lesser effect like there's all these different ways to contextualize it when you look around at the world that you live in and how things work like that those are things that always work in every way like reality as tyler Furfoot said it rhymes and Mm. that's one of the reasons that i finally decided to start learning about astrology even though it's somewhat of a taboo topic in my circles so yes (laughs) 
why is it taboo? Oh, well, okay. So if you read Labor Nolan's Psychonaut, Peter J. Carroll goes on this kind of thing against astrology, but only, I think, looking back on it when you use it as a divination tool, not as a tool for like understanding oneself, perhaps. Yeah, that's how my mom feels about astrology, actually. She's a she's a, an ardent tropical astrologer. Yes, uh, I read about astrology, mom. Yeah, she's very she's, cool. She's hardcore. Um, Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And she, she, after I finished the Golden Dawn, she was so impressed by the changes it, that how I had changed, complete overhaul of who I was and the quality of my life. She she then joined and went through it. And then my sister did too. And they didn't even know each other were inquiring and going through it. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Very cool. Testament, because like I, I was stunned. I was, I was very surprised, especially when my sister wanted to as well but i and when i she took me up for coffee and explained why i was like why she's like she's like because i can't understand how your life turned around like this it just the results like if this is what it did for you i want to know what it can do for me and i was like sure. wow cool you know and uh it's cool when we see magical systems attracting people who you wouldn't expect because they're like yeah well you know if it works it works right mm-hmm. and it's in some ways our uh, human birthright I mean, yeah, definitely. There's not been a period of any period of time in human history we haven't been doing some kind of magic. And to be honest, like I'm increasingly starting to suspect that one of the reasons that things are so fucked up is that we got away from doing it. Oh yeah. Oh hell yeah. Away from it. Away from the plants and nature that that we come from, that we're entwined with and enmeshed with, and you know we're all yeah. It's it's like. You know, nature is God's body, in in my opinion, and so to to separate and disconnect from that, and especially the plant medicines, and is is the greatest of errors and sins. I mean, there's a reason that in the Bible they they preach it not against magic, as is often mistranslated, but against you know pharmacy. Hmm. Interesting. Know? Yeah. Yeah, I was reading this book called The Master and His Emissary by Ema Gilchrist. And yeah, I've heard of that. I know that it's somewhat of a like controversial topic in in the field. I'm not an expert in in this field or anything, but I can tell by the tone of the like preface that he's it's very defensive, you know. Um, but it's it's absolutely fascinating. I think it really actually hits well on this topic that we're talking about right now. It, um, his assertion is that the predominance or the the imbalance between the left and the right hemisphere is driving us towards not just the collapse of Western civilization, but the collapse of all civilizations because other civilizations have adopted our, our mode, our modality. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I, I, I'm only a couple hours into it so far, but it's, it's fascinating. I would highly recommend it. So oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Um, it makes me think, you know, that's one thing. Another thing to remember about the original golden dawn is um, a lot of those magicians were, um, they were very in, in, involved in entheogens, right? Like Yates was very big. Like they were, they were, you know, smoking hashish and and doing peyote. Um, that was a part of it. They just, you know, didn't didn't talk about it too much. I mean, well, like, Crowley, couldn't you Crowley like go to the drugstore and like buy a vial of cocaine for your like yeah, knee you pain could. or some shit? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They I, were all about that shit. I can <laughs> I can just walk down the street here in Vancouver and go into a store and buy a bag of peyote and go brew it at home for 75 bucks. It's legal. Really? Same as 5-MeO-DMT and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Interesting. Um, huh. Yeah, I know. Come to Canada. Let's let's get some more people up here so we can do retreats and and workshops and seminars and conferences. Well, yes, and hopefully this lockdown will end soon. People can get the vaccines and everything. Oh, we're just getting started on lockdown in Canada. I was lo- I was in California uh, teaching when when COVID happened. I got it took me till September to be allowed back into Canada. And when I arrived here in September, no one was wearing masks in stores or the grocery store or anywhere. There was no mask. We only started wearing masks a while, like a month later in October. Oh, um, wow. And so we're just getting going on the lockdown. We're under, we got curfews and, you know, we're just, we're just gearing up. This is going to be. But a, is the vaccine not decade. being distributed? No, they don't really want to distribute it too much because that would, uh, you know, that would, uh, yeah, let's not. We don't need to get into. Okay, it. I'm so sorry. I'm I You're apologize for my ignorance. You have such a great mind. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. You know. Yeah. I, I, so there's some days where I'm just tired of of the situation of the world, and, and I want to escape. And some days I rant and rave about it. Um, today, uh, with yeah. especially with a guest like you, I'm very keen to explore things that have nothing to do with the. the <laughs> okay, that the, is fair the, enough. The dystopian <laughs> simulated nightmare that is our world these days. Well. Don't despair. I mean, <laughs> I, I for real, like shit. We all do have a lot more fucking power than we are led to believe, and I think that oh, that's yeah. something that we need to fucking always keep in mind. Well, that's why I've been. That's why the last year I've been like uh, hardcore upgrading my Enochian skills beyond just what you learn in the Golden Dawn, and I've been upgrading it. So, because because it's especially designed, the Enochian system has a whole a whole segment of it is to affect the reality of different countries in the world um, mm-hmm. very directly. So I'm uh, I'm curious what, you know, there was a, on the Golden Dawn forums, there was a, the depths of different orders uh, c- calling out reminders for, you know, uh, you know, the magicians of light to not forget to keep doing work and healing like the Rosicrucian ethos of uh, healing gratis, healing freely, um, use our magic to impact this world. In our order, in my time, that was the main work of the inner order of our our inner order was, you know, a yearly uh, get-togethers where all the adepts, of course, fly, you know, come to the same place on for day C. And uh, we our main work labors were around uh, spending the year in advance of that preparing and doing rituals that led up to talisman consecrations and then contacting the third order and getting directions on which adepts should go to Jerusalem or Calcutta or 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 Strasbourg to plant those talismans in certain places to have positive influences on the world. Very cool. I love that. That was, that was a major labor, and we invested epic amounts of time and money in on those in those pursuits so we definitely believe in what we're doing right when you're sending people yeah. like jerusalem at the height of the troubles uh 20 years ago when it was you know war zone and you know trying to trying to bring some peace and and uh, use yeah. magic yeah well, good, no, good works that is very cool for sure hell yeah oh i was going to mention that i listened to your um Azrael invocation earlier yeah it's so funny because like it came on to my podcast you know playlist like i was working out and it came on and it was like oh yeah that's great (laughs) got me really fired up i loved it i just wanted to say that yeah what did you think of the effects it was uh it was powerful i felt like i was standing in a a large hall like you know with you know there the echoes and everything like it, it was very fun i liked it yeah, I, I I did it for real. I didn't do it like I would do it if I was reciting it as a work of recitation, like a poem. 
I did it as if I was actually doing it. Well, I actually was doing it. And, and that causes the tempo to become a bit more erratic, a bit more rapid, because I'm trying to create an actual cause, an actual ecstatic experience. And oh, yeah. I, I did it many, many, many times because I wanted to, um, you know, have the one that I used be like is, you know, the rest of my day was quite interesting with being close <laughs> as real. Yeah. I felt like there was a second set of eyes on my own eyes just, and my mind was partly, uh, um, you know, not, there was another mind, uh, sort of tingling in my own that was this Azrael Azrael perspective of things. And I've always had a close relationship with that angel since I was a, a kid and, uh, reading like Layla Wendell's, uh, amazing works. Rest in peace. I'm glad I actually finally got to talk to her before she passed last year. Um, she was uh, quite the author of uh, The Angel of Death. But God, seeing God's helper, I just, you know, that idea of God's helper has been a, to me, it's a very healing idea, the healing side of death, the the angel that helps us find our way afterward. Yeah. I mean, it, I, th- I feel like there's a lot of like, um, healing benefits that you can find in like, you know, doing these kind of, you know, workings with considering death or like maybe you're into necromancy or whatever your thing is, but like, you know, this like energy of that, of like this dissolution and like laying things to rest, like it can be incredibly healing for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm glad the effects weren't too much. I I definitely wanted to, I thought, well, Hey, you know, well, well, I may as well, I was an experiment to put such a produced, uh, you know, overblown track <laughs> like um uh, you know there's a more uh, natural sounding version that i i sent to uh, uh, a friend who might do something with it and we'll see if that happens um but yeah actually i did i but i did i did uh, create a natural delay by doubling the track and then taking the second track and nudging it forward just a couple milliseconds that so that created the natural delay rather than just use a a button effect Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I thought that it sounded a little more echoey than the yeah. echo functions that I'm familiar with. Oh, yeah. Very cool. So that's a old, <laughs> old, quick little trick. Just uh, copy the track, layer it below, and then nudge it forward uh, as many milliseconds as you want. Yes, to. I'm actually just now getting into psychoacoustics, and this is like a thing, like in terms of the timing and stuff. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have fun when I start recording a bunch of the uh, uh, Celtic mysteries uh, invocations and prayers that are being developed uh so because i'll do some have some fun doing editing and layer effects with like my ellen pipes and like irish flute and and sounds like that i i plan on having fun with that because it's the fairies right so they love music and the music and sound is so powerful when combined with uh, like mushrooms and other things like that sure definitely so i'm wondering like do you consider this stuff like are you kind of contextualizing contextualizing this as like a, a form of sound magic like um magic is very it, sound is huge with magic it's why the it's why it's why we developed uh, vibratory techniques in the golden dawn and we don't mm-hmm. just chant things or say them or declare them we vibrate them because mm-hmm. that's that's just huge like vibration is it's uh, it's so powerful if it's not people's cup of tea that's great but like i don't do do it because i think it's cool though i it's definitely grown on me and i i do think it's fucking awesome but the different v- variations of vibratech vibratory technique including leading up to what we call the great voice which is a a soundless vibratory technique where you're basically have to recreate you have the same physiological effect if you do it right uh, as if you were vibrating at maximum volume as loud as you mm-hmm. could um, okay. Cool. Yeah. So yeah I'm thinking about some yoga techniques that are very difficult, cool. but you can do it. 
And it's, uh, yeah, and there's techniques in the inner order taught for that called the great voice. And, uh, you know, and that developing that is crucial for advanced astral work, of course. Yeah, that reminds me of some yoga techniques I've come across. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. But if you do, if you, if, if you if you did that in a hot yoga class, all of a sudden people would be like, "Whoa, that person's like really, really next level." But if you did that within in an Enochian ceremony, they'd be like, "That person's a Satanist, locked on death row for eighteen years." I guess it all depends on who your friends are. But yes, totally. Oh well, amen. Well said. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, very cool. You've got my mind spinning and thinking about a, a lot more things than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. You've given me a lot of stuff to think about, all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff. I'm curious how, as so as a as someone who's is a biologist essentially, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me when people with a strong understanding of science, uh, practice magic and how, do, how would you say, uh, how do you see that? How do you see reconcile and how do you not reconcile? Cause that, that implies there's something that needs to be reconciled. And I don't think either of us think that that's the case, but how do you see that biological scientific framework within your life as a magician? Well, I do think that like, Okay, like getting back to sort of what I was saying earlier about like systems and stuff, like I think it's really easy to contextualize all these different things as different versions of this greater pattern, right? Mm -hmm. They all iterate in different ways, but there's a certain like sort of game plan that seems to be carried out in all cases. When when you look at it from I'm not I'm not to be like reductionist, but like when you look at it from like a broad perspective, you can say like there's these general rules, you know, um so I think that actually it was like really getting like deep into science that led me back to my spiritual practice. Like, cause I had gotten away from it for a little uh -huh. while. I, I had gone to school. Um, I was studying philosophy for a while and I kind of, to be honest, like I sort of just, I needed, I feel like I needed to get my bearings and sort of like maybe that like Aristotelian like thought of like, you know, a is A, right? Yeah. <laughs> it is. If you, that was where I was at at the time. Um, and so I, you know, I went back home after, you know, taking some, you know, was going to this like crazy liberal arts school studying philosophy and shit. And I just sort of realized that I needed to take a different tract. And so I went back to my hometown and I studied to become an automotive mechanic so I was like oh, an automotive wow. technician for about five years or so after I got done studying that. And like, I started, but like, and that was cool because like, you can't fucking argue. Like that was the thing, like with all this subjectivity, like you can always argue with it, but like, there's also a thing where it's like, well, if you do something to the vehicle and the engine wouldn't start before, and now it does, like, you can definitely say that like, yes, my actions have had a result. It's very comforting in some ways to like be able to have that like touchstone, right? And I think that just because of my background, I was lacking that. So I think I needed to like build that framework for myself of like really, you know, understanding like how to, I had all this like artsy stuff and subjectivity, but I didn't have the other side of the coin. So, but getting into that and like actually like really like getting curious about like, well, this works but why, like, why does this shit work? You know? And like, and so I got really interested in physics 
And so I decided to go back to night school. I was going to get a degree in physics at night. And, um, and that was going really cool. And I was loving my classes and I needed a biology credit. And I ended up taking botany from this amazing professor and it completely fucking blew my mind. And I realized that I had to study plants instead. (laughs) And so I switched to my major, even though I was pretty deep into the other thing. Um, And long story short, I ended up getting a degree in in biology with a a minor in like environmental studies. But, and, and it just like, like looking at ecology and like looking at these like big systems and stuff and like, contextualizing that like within the framework of like complex nonlinear dynamics and like realizing that like this is a universal idea about how systems work like this can be applied in so many ways like even like the way that you think about something has that same like rippling out effect because that is also a feedback loop like when you think something it it comes back and that that that's what causes these systems to occur is like the output is the new input. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Does that answer your question? I feel like I rambled on about things and I, I'm not sure that I quite addressed what you were asking, but. Well, you know, we're, ta- we're talking about some pretty big stuff. So it, 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 it even, even answer answers, the answers within that tend to, I find open even more questions and uh, cause many ponderings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess, like, I would say that, like, I would say that it was it, of knowledge. Yeah, it was. It was actually science that brought me to the the spiritual path. It was like, yeah, I, so I don't really remarkable. see any like difference between them, really. Like, because I think it's just like a whole. I hate the word like uh, holistic, but I will use it because I think it's accurate. It's like a holistic way of looking at the world, like you know they're yeah. yes <laughs> yeah, so no it's that's that's right it, i mean it's technically it, it's technically holistic in the in a proper sense and uh yeah i mean i think we're, we're seeing we're seeing this uh you know this slow merging of uh you know the the, the one thing that they said a lot in seminary to us i one quote i heard a lot was was when uh when when, when science and uh, religion finally get to their endpoint, they'll discover mysticism, then they're all along. <laughs> yes, and I don't know. I, I feel like it's... I do think that, like, we as as human creatures have a sort of, like... There's There's part of our... Just to get, like, real materialistic, there's part of our psychological framework that requires these kinds of like modes of thought. And if you don't find them in spirituality, I believe that you might end up misplacing them in like places like science where it's, it's not supposed to be like that. Science is supposed to be about a tool set to investigate things and ask questions. It's not supposed to be about dogma. Yeah. Well, that's something you hear scientists complaining about uh, as well as people in every academic field. I mean, Eric Weinstein rants and raves about that, and uh, but you know other scientists do too. They they're like, look, well, there's a lot of things we can't study or publish on just simply because our community says no. So yeah, they're like, to- they they won't let that come out, and I, then you have to go independent, say it independently outside of an academic journal or a lecture hall, and then all then all of a sudden you're a charlatan it, or a coot. Well, it's not peer reviewed anymore. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah. 
of and, and what, evil. Well, there's a lot of problems with the process for sure. But I mean, I, I will just say that, like, you know, if I don't know. <laughs> what? I'm trying to think of how best to frame this. Okay. I guess like if, if you're not like asking questions and you're not like open to what those answers will be beyond like what you expect them to be, then you're not doing science because you're not, technically being objective yeah there we go like wonko the saint says see first ask questions later but always see first quote from douglas adams (laughs) so yes (laughs) it's a great touchstone though i feel yeah no that's that's excellent um yeah the dogmatism within academia is uh it's it's been interesting. I mean, there are there are competing views, of course, in most fields. But yeah, like in in philosophy, the uh, the analytical versus continental theory, or Anglo American as it's as analytical is often called, and uh, the and people especially I find when they only study a bit of something end up with some very uh, wrong notions. Like people who read a little bit of Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida do not understand them. Like the way that most people in like the critical race theory uh, community have appropriated Derrida is atrocious. I mean, they certainly haven't read where he says that the most important thing is faith. You know, (laughs) they're not aware of that because they haven't actually read or understood his literature at all. Um, I'm actually not familiar with that, so I will not opine. (laughs) But I will say like, you know, like, okay, so there's a lot of these... um, spokespeople for science right yeah that which is cool i think that i do think that like there's a lot of places especially in the country i live in the u.s where we could definitely make improvements to educating the public about science and all kinds of stuff which i think would be very good but there's also i feel like there is also this thing that's happening with some of these folks who they love science and they, they feel very strongly about it, almost religiously about it. And they feel that they are, you know, championing this cause of reason, but by like abandoning the actual idea behind science and turning it more into this like dogmatic ideology, they're in some ways, one of the biggest threats to reason, which is very troubling. Yeah. In my in my main book, which was my major academic study, which is on ethics and mysticism, that that's something I had a lot of a lot of uh, time dedicated to was the the dangers of certitude in mm. in and the way that they limit you know hermeneutic horizons or just the openness to understanding and and how. But then I then I looked at how that defines the individual ethically rather than continue to just explore epistemology and metaphysics. Um, so yeah, yeah, certitude is one of the most dangerous things we're dealing with, um, period. Absolutely. And I mean, I would absolutely, I know some of his jokes haven't aged well, but Robert Anton Wilson is a great touchstone for some of this stuff. Like, you know, the idea of like, you know, maybe you shouldn't be so sure about the things that you think, you know, 
Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe I think, I think it, I'm going to paraphrase here and he says like, I don't know anything, but I have so- strong suspicions about things. And I really like that, you know, like, because it takes away that like emotional or ego tie to the thing, you know, it's like, I don't know this, but I, I suspect it's true because I've seen it. Like, I don't know the sun's going to rise tomorrow, but I suspect that it probably fucking will just based on my experiences, but I'm not going to like tie my ego up in that and say like, I know that I know this, right? Like this is an observation that we can make and agree will, will probably happen, but we don't need to. You believe the sun will rise tomorrow, (laughs) but in theory, the universe could just explode. So we don't like yeah. when you when you look real real close. We don't know know that. That's what I'm right? saying. You yes. believe, <laughs> yes. Yeah, which is why it's important to have beliefs, and but beliefs should be based on our best available knowledge, not just willy nilly. Like G.K. Chesterton says, uh, you know, if you don't believe in something, you don't then believe in nothing. You'll believe in anything. Hmm. Yeah, that's always a, a good thinker. Sure. You know, because you, yeah, so it's like this balancing act between uh, uh, the closed certitude of uh, uh, confines of ideology, or maybe if you put that in terms of Kabbalah, the pillar of form, and then the pillar of force, which at its worst extreme is, is utter uh, meaningless relativism mm-hmm. and, a, totally. and an empty pit rather than an infinite chessboard Solipsism. of possibilities, yeah. which is, would be the Derridian view of. Yeah. of metaphysics non-platonic of course but and interpreted but still a reality sure and like yeah we don't need to like get lost in solipsism either and say like you know i don't know it's 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 fine like i we think we i don't know because even the assertion that there is no way to know is also an assertion of truth too so it's like better to just shrug your shoulders i don't know That's the and that that's the beauty of 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 this stuff, right? Because that when you go when you go down that road, all of a sudden you you're like in the realm of like negative theology or negative confessional uh, statements of reality, like like we find, and that that takes you right back to even in the you know the negative confession in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Meister Eckhart as well, and that's when you uh, okay, oh don't lose the thought, don't lose the thought, and that's. Uh, <laughs> And that's when you're back with back in mysticism, right? You're back back to mysticism, and uh, yeah, yeah. I I I think like I think it was Aristophanes in Clouds where he talked. He's making fun of like the the Platonists and stuff, and like they're they're in this the school is called the Thinkery, and they're like their whole thing is like burying their head in the sand and like. I, you know, it's just it's mm-hmm. kind of like this funny, like outside perspective of this stuff too. It's like, well, also, it doesn't super matter either, which I think is that's where humor comes in, and that I think that that's mm. where humor is very important. You know, balance to some of this stuff. You know, it's awesome to fucking take your practice seriously and like really do it to death, but like maintain some balance by also laughing at yourself sometimes. I think that can be really helpful. <laughs> Hey, it's why it's why magicians talk about like you know the Homer Simpson God form or, or silly things <laughs> like that, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely gotta gotta laugh at it. If you don't laugh at it, you, you can always invoke the baboon form of 
both and uh he'll laugh at you and there's your humor yes what is that guy's name again it starts with a c right i can't uh, see my mind oh what is it um yeah it's again tip, tip of my tongue <laughs> it's okay I, 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 it's it's been a very long long day for me and it was a, 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 late, a late night i'm sure that your I, listeners will before, write to you about it <laughs> yeah someone will know it uh zemin Zemi Jehudi will know he'll, he'll, his his book uh, his book the Church of Flesh and Feather and the Book of Flesh and Feather is awesome shit for people who have uh, forgotten about that and need to go get a copy of his wonderful devotional works to Tehuti the great God Jehuti. <laughs> um, yeah, so I listened to your podcasts a bit more and finished another episode before I we got on the the horn and then to prepare for your podcast. Of course, I smoked a, a beautiful big sativa joint and. Uh, Oh, that's always a good thing to do. It was, before it was a one, and I just closed my eyes and lay down and listened to, yeah, it's two hours of your your awesome podcast, which culminated in one of my favorite poems I've ever heard from the cut up poem. Is that what you call it? The cut up poetry. Oh yeah, yeah, was it's outstanding. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, fucking that's... awesome! Everyone needs to hear it. It's at the end of the the, you know, the first episode of your podcast, but it's you know it's super worth it. Um, Hell yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was, I was very surprised because I was like, oh, come on, just write me a nice sonnet. I love formal poetry and formal structure of poetry as much as, <laughs> as much as I love Ginsburg and blank verse as well. I love all poetry, but you know, I'm, I'm a lover of the child book of ballads and stuff. And you're like, oh, we're going to cut the words and like throw them in the air or just reassemble them. However, it's like, okay, give it to me. And then I was just floored. And I, I'm sure the, the meditative state I was in with this, the sativa haze of consciousness and the slight uh, mushroom shapes, like, you know, a good weed can cause like definite psychedelic visions. eh? <laughs> um, especially if you also do a lot of psilocybin, I find, or DMT, the, 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 they interact with each other. There's cross uh, influence between your receptors or something, and they can trigger each other's states. And so, yeah, that was a awesome, awesome poetry exercise that I'll have to try. Thank sometime. you. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is actually part of my deity work doing that stuff, like this idea of randomness and everything. And yeah, it's 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 very cool and very fun. So yeah, I'm glad yeah. you enjoyed it. That 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 sounds like a kind of daily ritual work for a coyote, right? You know, right. Yeah, take well, a piece it's... of writing and cut it up into its words, and then put put make a new poem out of it. Yeah, I wish I just want people to. <laughs> I wish people could hear it right now. It's like go yeah. go listen to that. It was really cool. And then, it's, yeah, it's a technique. I think no, the technique was like, um, you know, developed or made popular at least by William S. Burroughs. Like this kind of idea of like cutting things up and like um, this, like you know this interplay between like you and this, like, you know, the randomness of it. And like, it's almost like a divinatory act too. like, you know, like going into this trance and like writing these things and then, you know, cutting them up. Like what I use is I use a, a randomizing machine to completely randomize the words. Some people oh, wow. will cut them up line by line. Um, but like new information comes back to you based on the rearrangement of the words. And it's very, very interesting. You also mentioned you do a lot of, uh, that you do automatic writing. And that's actually been one of my main practices my whole life. One mm -hmm. of the, the techniques that comes easiest to me. So I was, I was hoping we could maybe talk a bit about, about that practice. Yeah, that's something that, like you, I've been doing it for quite a long time. I think that um, it was probably introduced to me in high school as a technique for creative writing I don't think it was contextualized as automatic writing. My teacher at the time called them 
I think that it was contextualized as something that the poet Alice Walker would do called finger exercises, where you would just like write for 15 minutes and not stop. Mm. And if you like got stuck, you would write the same word over and over and over again Mm. until your brain got bored with it. And you would write a new one and just not thinking about it and seeing what sort of came out. And, you know, over the years sort of like fucking around with this and developing it, it has become like a very natural thing. Um, which is cool. I, I'm not, I don't, I don't personally feel that my uh, creative writing is like super cool or great or anything, but it's also like I can do it and it's a useful tool that like gives me information back. Again, this like feedback loop idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's fascinating. Can you say more about it? Um, about like, um, do you did you find that there was a relationship between that exercise and then doing automatic writing with a spirit, where the intention was to bring in information from a different entity? Well, I've been, you know, this idea of like accepting the, I don't know, chaos of what comes. It's very easy to like think about it in terms of like you could think about like Eris if you want to or Discordia or whatever right this is like a classic you know old school you know chaos magic kind of a trope right so I think this is a really good touchstone to like use for like communicating this idea right like um the randomness has order within it and the order has randomness and the randomness has order you know like going down on these like sort of fractal layers right and so like depending on where you look and at what scale you can find meaning or no meaning or both or neither um so it's an idea of like you know of like saying like you know here here we go i submit this to you like what will come back to me yeah yeah do you do you have you do you do you get a distinct sense of of the difference in your mind between your own thoughts and what's coming through or do you not take the time to even notice that you just focus on letting the words flow and now a word from our sponsors at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Um... Is there is there much of a deliberation at, at points that you no, find, or is it no, just... no, not at all? Like I don't know where any of my stuff comes from. <laughs> like right. when I'm like in my creative process, like it just sort of happens. I uh, I don't know. So it makes sense, sort of, because you got Pisces in your chart. See, I have no no real water planet. It might, I have no planets in any water at all. Um, so okay. it makes sense that we would have a different uh, sort of relationship. Um, to that though for me it does flow but in a in a very in a, in, a, in a less intuitive way i guess i don't know how to describe it sure yeah no that makes sense it's yeah like the creative process for me is like it's really about just trying to get the fuck out of my own way i think yeah yeah i think that's why like the, the time uh, i really do rely on like on on the ritual element to 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 give me the control and the the willpower to like maintain my focus and let it let that channel be open like yeah for me the initiatory the magical uh thing really makes a huge difference to my ability to do it which is i found uh interesting but not surprising yeah and for me recently so because i've i've been an incredibly private person until very recently within like the last year and a half or so and so like I'm sort of in this new space where I'm like sharing this work with people too, which is another like really interesting thing because like in the past, like I would, you know, I would go through this creative process and I would like create something and like, but part of that process, like instead of like sharing it with other people, like it was like the completion of it was to like destroy it, you know? And so like, Mm -hmm. this is like a completely different like way of doing things where I'm actually like sharing it and stuff, which I think, um, introduces another really interesting context to it for me, I think, which is um, a cool thing to explore. Yeah. Do you have um, any um, spirits or gods in particular that you've done multiple sessions with of creative, of, uh, <laughs> of uh, automatic writing? Well, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily like contextualize like the the writing process of it to be like I'm channeling uh, okay. an entity, but like the 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 process of randomization, I think, is where that comes in. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I see it as sort of as inspired literature sometimes, but at other times the connections are such that I just feel like a scribe for a, a different consciousness. Sure. I mean, yeah, getting into like a things. yeah. No, and I guess like maybe I should say like I don't know, you could you could look at it from like a more broad perspective or more general way and say like, well, yes, I'm I am like channeling this creative force. So maybe that is like you could think about it like, you know, this this three energy is a way that I always like to to think about it, like the ener- the creative energy of like three, the number three, mm. the empress, or the we see this all over the place, right? But the three is so important, but like, um, so yeah, there, a lot of like weird number stuff comes into it too for me sometimes, but yeah. Hmm, interesting. The way I, I trained myself actually was, um, in graveyards, sitting on graves, um, and trying to connect to the name. And then I felt that way when I read what I wrote afterwards, I could 
sort of gauge a sense of what was fanciful and creatively spontaneous and what might be things that were actually true to that person objectively, you know, who knows? Cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was sort of my thing. My favorite session ever was sitting on Yates's grave in Ireland for three hours while my wife was frustratedly sitting there to the side, uh, waiting for me to finish. <laughs> and all the tourists were pissed off. All well, she sounds like point. a fucking saint. <laughs> she, was a, she was a, she was a, she was a, she was a good wife. We had a wonderful six month marriage. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but we had known each other since grade one, so we really should have just never done it. But like live and learn. Okay. We were young and foolish and blah, blah, blah. All okay. that does. We were just like crazy sexually compatible. And that's enough to get cause you to like, you know, make those decisions when you're 20, you know? Oh, yes. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Like, I'm never going to want to not fuck another person in the rest of my life. And then you like move in together and you're like, oh, this doesn't work. <laughs> Oh, yes. When you're young, you don't have all of the context of yeah. experience, of course. Yes. Yeah, you, you, yeah, a marriage can't just be, you know, fun in bed <laughs> for your whole life. <laughs> I mean, maybe it can. I mean, God bless you if, if you got that out there. If anyone out there is like, all we do is fuck. It's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, back. you know what? Whatever works, right? Yeah. Like if, uh, if that's... Lucky yeah, hell yeah. If that's what If that's what you got going on, that's working for you, fuck yeah, that's right. I don't know. Like everybody's different relationships are weird i don't know i feel like we're getting into a whole nother thing yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we can go there or not <laughs> yeah have you ever thought about joining any magical groups or, or i guess you have this group that you've created you have uh you have sort of your own sphere group with, yeah it's uh, weird i've like okay. never actually contextualized it in that way but i think you're right sort of yeah. like um it's ad hoc but it's yeah, it just it's it's really just trying to like hold a space for people that are like looking for that connection in this very trying time and um you know and just people that are like wanting to you know explore new avenues like you know explore like the the combination of art and magic or like people that are wanting to do healing work or people that are you know wanting to do you, like a lot there's a lot of stuff that's coming up about like you know environmental awareness and stuff and just like, like sort of understanding what's happening and everything and trying to like say well what would be the best way to confront all of these horrible fucking problems and all that stuff right like i don't know um but yeah so yeah it's definitely i haven't actually joined any like like very formal magical group before i'm incredibly like um i guess like maybe a loner would be a good way to put it yeah. I'm, I'm incredibly introverted no. but i do I'm, I'm coming to the point now and this is why i became you know i sort of like came out of hiding or whatever you want to say like i became less private and started making podcasts and shit is like i did realize like that i had come to a point in my practice where it was time to um learn from people and also share what i had learned with others too mm. awesome yeah so when did you start your podcast i started my podcast um i think it was in july of last year yeah and i wonder how many podcasts i wonder what the number is of how many started since covid i bet a lot <laughs> i bet a lot <laughs> But like, yeah, it wasn't. Hey, really this like is a... <laughs> Jeff doing episode four hundred and thirty-six 
of my podcast. <laughs> it's been two months since I started it, and today I had cereal. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. That's cool, Jeff. Hope you're doing like, okay. Like Jeff food. That's the podcast. <laughs> he probably would make more money on ads from all the sponsorships just doing that. Oh yeah, I don't know. He'd be a cereal company to be like, could you mention which cereal you ate, and we'll give you <laughs> today cereal. Oh right, brought to you by Lucky Charms. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's cool to you. And it's like, well, if you're going to podcast, like, I don't oh, know. I love should, absurd podcasts. You shouldn't try to like, I don't, this is one thing is like, people are, to me, like, I don't know if making a podcast is necessarily like a great way to make money. So if you're going to do it, you should do it because you love it. And because you want to, oh, not because yeah. you're going to make money, because there's lots of other better ways to make oh, money yeah. if that's what you want. Like, oh yeah. Dude, if you want to make money, just like you know go like do do affiliate links to sex toys and, and dildos you'll make way more money than a podcast um and yeah but yeah you have to love it you have to really love it because it's a it's a it's a lot of work yeah totally um but yeah it really is and it's a lot of fucking work it's an insane amount of work to be honest yes yeah um this yeah mine sort of started because i was like I was tired of a lot of the uh, a popular occult world um, just not having sort of a sense of access point to more some of the academic literature that is often provides amazing insights into for practitioners. But, you know, a lot of people aren't comfortable reading academic essays or even know where to find them or who the good academics are. And I was like, well, what if I do commentaries on some of the most interesting papers? So I would look, I would read over a couple of papers each day when I started it. And then I'd find one that I thought had some relevant stuff in it that I could interpret in ways and give ideas and spitball how this might apply to this or that. And that was the, that was the starting. That was how I started it. And I was like, this could, this is something I would enjoy, you know? Okay. So this, that's awesome. And like, this actually brings me to something that I was hoping to ask you is like, okay, so when we're looking through these like old texts and stuff, a lot of times we find that the authors were living in times where people had like a lot shittier ideas about um, different like humans than them. They're not even different, like people that they thought were different. I don't know, not to get mired in the semantics, but like when we're reading these like kind of like older historical texts and we come across these like really repugnant ideas about, about race and about like ethnicity and stuff like that and like the root race theories that blavatsky popular yeah all we we see this in so many different places or just like these really gross opinions by by people that like i mean i'll call it out like all kinds of the all all kinds of folks right like people from crowley to fortune to like uh to rudolf steiner to you know a lot of people had these like really gross weird ideas about shit right and like yeah I, so, I wouldn't say that that they they necessarily all had those ideas. More that this was an idea that was being explored, and because it was popularized by someone who had clout and prominence, it was then explo- It sort of needed. It's like if if one person, if if an idea becomes or become or, or a vogue or a fashion or an intellectual trend becomes popular, then it can be necessary to address it, and you can either get on side with it and explore it, or explore it and discard it. But either way, you sort of got to address it. So the root race stuff was something that they all sort of had to address, and some of them got a bit bit more into it and thought it might be more real than it than it was because we know it's a bunch of fucking bullshit, right? 
on the idea yeah. of Aryan root races and Melchizedekian root races, and some root races are better it, than others. But it, they, we were, that was a time when Irish people and Italians were listed in the dictionary as subhuman species. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, and and this is another thing too, like because I I come back to this all the time too, like you know doing this history podcast with my brother and stuff, and it's like, well, you know, we we do find that like it is kind of it's not it's not like a I don't know the idea that people should be treated equally no matter her like how they look and where they're from. It seems to be, and maybe it's not a new idea but it's one that's been out of vogue for so long in our culture that it seems like a fucking new idea all of a sudden. Right. And it's like, well, the, yeah, the transcendentalist movement came along in reaction to that sort of mentality back in the day, um, along with humanism came in and, you know, came into prominence as, as a, as a foil to the, the idea of these ontological root races that we're spiritually a part of, um, but what's funny is we've gone almost full circle back to humanitarianism being considered wrong again today and and that people should be divided and segregated based on their races. Um, so it's it's alive and well, right? It's uh, racism is alive and well, and it's just in a different form. So people sure. are still always attracted to these things. And I think it speaks mainly to a spiritual crisis uh, of the human condition. Right, you know, the search for meaning and de- definition and distinction of who we are, or and it's it just such a like shortcut a... to do it in contradistinction to other people and in groups. It could also be a struggle against what some people might call like our more base animal nature or something, right? Like to be more human is to be more empathetic, to be more aware situationally of like all these different contexts and things, like. But I'm just curious, like when you come across these kinds of things, like in these texts that you study, like how do you treat that information? Like how do we sort out the like shitty stuff from the good stuff and like keep what we want going forward and disregard the gross stuff? Like well, I, I'm just curious yeah, about like yeah, how yeah. you how you contextualize that. Well, that, that's where like things like critical thinking and and understanding the history of interpretation and philosophy is very useful because when you have a a sense of the history of ideas and how they've played out and their philosophical and theological underpinnings and all of that, the mechanisms by which they work and and you're confidently able to manage reason, then it it can help you sort out the, the wheat from the chaff, right? Like for me, even as a child reading Rudolf Stein, it was pretty obvious to me which stuff was hogwash. Like when I came across the race stuff, and in Blavatsky and him, the the root race stuff, I was like, this is nonsense. This it just didn't strike me as even possibly conceivably interesting or true. And when uh, when some adepts would tell me, um, like in Zaleski's order, they were saying you had to read Alice A. Bailey. So I was reading Alice A. Bailey, whose books my mom had all her books on the shelf, so it was easy to pick up the one I was told to read. And I went, I, you know, and I, they wanted me to just, you know, I was like, okay, if this is what they're doing for their curriculum for advanced adepti. Let me take a look at it. And my buddy Martin told me to, and and he said, if you re- want to study with Zaleski for some of the advanced inner order grades and just learn more now that you're now that you know, the temple's closed and you're independent, um, this is what you start with, like this book. And I <laughs> like right early on in the book, I get to a chapter called the Jewish problem, problem, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> no yeah there you go I'm right not, like I, mean, I can't do it man it's pretty fucking it. blatant sometimes right and so like i don't know like okay so getting a book on healing that has a chapter called the jewish problem oh my right God. yeah i mean i i'm kind of 
see, if I had that book in my hands, I would be tempted to like throw it in the fucking I, trash can. I fucking, you know? I, like, I fucking threw it away. Um, after, like, I, after I showed the chapter to a few people, I was like, check out what's in this motherfucking book. Because a lot of people love Alice A. Bailey, but, uh, you know. Well, I mean, and people can have shitty ideas about things and good ideas about other things. But it's like, I don't know. So, like, getting back to this idea of, like, science and occultism, too, right? So, like, moving forward in science, like, okay, so if you're, you're like, a modern scientist and you're talking about, like, um, the ether, right? Like, this supposed, like, fluid that light or whatever, that light has to propagate through because things have to propagate through something, right? Like... (laughs) People will fucking laugh at you. It will be disregarded. It'll be tossed out. And I think that there could be something to be said there, like in occultism of like that same kind of a process of being like, no, that was fucking stupid. And we should call it out and be like, that's dumb. And we need to get rid of that and ridicule people that actually think that just like people that think that light has to propagate through ether. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because ideas move on and progress, right? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and yeah, we, I mean, that's the idea behind, you know, heuristic learning that, you know, every, every structure of understanding is only uh, true and sufficient insofar as it helps us to get to a, a better, a more mm-hmm. accurate structure and level. Like that's, that's the, I love the metaphor of Jacob's ladder and like, you know, you take it a rung at a time, you know? Sure. And, yeah, uh, definitely. You know, and I'm not saying that we should like burn all of the books from the past at all, because that's not what we need to do. Right. Like, but we, I think that, you know, just, I just think it's so fucking important to like really contextualize that. Yeah. And, you know, cause I, sometimes, you know, you're, you're reading these books and it's like, Oh, well this is, we're, we're so trained to think about things as being quote true, you know, like, or quote, not true, where a lot of us are raised in kind of like dogmatic, um, you know, scenarios where maybe it's a religion or maybe it's some other adherence to a philosophy. But like this idea of like dogma and or like just this kind of like, you know, rules and authority and stuff, it's something that we're all trained to accept in some way or another. So when we come across things in a text sometimes it's easy to think like, oh, well, this, it's ri- like the old saying, it's written in a book, so it must be true, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, 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 to, 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 to quote Michael Scott, you know Wikipedia is the best possible source of information because you, anyone can go on it and say whatever they want about any subject. <laughs> You're getting the full perspective and all the truth. <laughs> a lot of people have, have said to me, why don't you have a Wikipedia page? I'm like, because I'm smart. <laughs> you know, the last you, you do not want to be on Wikipedia because people can then just go say a bunch of crazy stuff. And if the gatekeepers of Wikipedia like it, it stays there. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I mean, but is I'm this begs the question as to whether this is not how all of these kinds of portals of knowledge function too, right? Like, isn't there exactly. always an editor? Isn't there? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. You see that in the magical community a lot with people um, saying, hey, I've, I've got the answer to this long debated question because I did uh, had an experience or talked to a god or an angel and they told me the answer or my higher self told me the, the answer. And, and now now I know the truth and you should all listen up. 
And uh, in my book, I address that with uh, discussing the ethical fallacy of, of what Alain Badiou, the French ethicist, calls tyranny, which is the application of a subjective truth to uh, a, a subject other than yourself, a person other than yourself. And mm. he describes that as ethical tyranny. because I think psychologists might call that gaslighting. Yes, well, the psychologists who... Uh, Embrace uh, film theory, at least. Yeah, it's. I love. Okay, I yeah, love, interesting. I love, okay. <laughs> I love. I love that a film uh, uh, characterized that art, a piece of art, you know, cinema characterized sure. a, a phenomenon that has become so uh, common in our parlance today, and it's just. Yeah. It's, it was just real, and they it gave it a new name, and the way that name came about was in such a creative manner through these gaslights being low raised and lowered to make someone think they're nuts and uh we though if anyone didn't know what gaslighting was before we after this past year we we all know what it is sure and i think in a lot of ways it's good that there's awareness you know bring you know there's a lot of more awareness about these kinds of uh we're talking about it destructive patterns that we see like you know so yeah it's good um People, it's not, it's not cool that people are abused in whatever context that happens in, right? So, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I mean, yeah, we, we definitely struggle with, uh, with honesty and uh, congruency, but that's, that's, that's part of the, part of the journey, right? To know ourselves and, uh, (laughs) yeah, peel back those layers of the onion (laughs) <laughs> What's true on one level is false on the next. The Kabbalah has a lot of fun with that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, but there is something to say about what works. What works in magic, you know. Like I was talking to St- Scott Stenwick before I did our second Enochian experiment with my weekly class on Sunday, and I was just running by a bunch of uh, discrepancies and issues and questions between all the sources and the manuscripts on Enochian and what the. Exp- in the context of the experiment we're doing over this month. And uh, I was like, the Enochian on your sigils, because you, he added the Enochian to the sigils that were that other people just put in English. And, was, and that makes sense, of course. But then he had the Enochian written like English, left to right, whereas generally it's considered Enochian should be written mm-hmm. like Hebrew, right to left. I was like, um, do you think this is correct? Was it intentional? Was it an oversight? Why did you do it this way? Do you think we should do it that way or should we try it the other way? And I was like, what's, what's the deal? And he was like, um, he's like, oh, he said, I think it's right. And I said, why? He's like, cause it works. <laughs> and I was like, perfect. We'll do it that way. We'll try it that way. The first <laughs> we'll try it the other way the second week, because the more times you have to redraw the same sigil, the better for your connection to that energy, the more you're tuning into that frequency. I mean, preparation work can be a very powerful thing in magic. Yeah. And I mean, at bottom line though, if it works, it works. Right. So that's, that's I'm, cool. I'm really curious. Like I'll, I'll do, I'll be doing experiments after I've done work with two versions of the sigils. I'll do, I'll even just try and see if one feels hotter because mm-hmm. talismans always feel really hot to me before without touching them. If I'm going through a box of uh, miscellaneous things and there's a talisman in the box from years ago that either me or my mom's or my sister's, I've noticed like I I feel a heat, a really hot heat near my hand. And I'm like, what's in this envelope? And sure enough, it's a talisman. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. I was just talking about this earlier. Yeah. Some things like are magically, I I use the phrase like magically hot to the touch, whether that's like you can see it or you can feel it physically or whatever it is, but yeah, definitely. 
yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, uh, and when I, I was always sort of skeptical about talismans, that was one thing that I used to always think was maybe more on the psychological side, you know, um, until, until I, I saw a scientist come out and be like, yeah, so objects and places and buildings, they have basically memory for lack of a better word and energy does stay on them and accrue to them. And I was like, holy fucking shit, talismanic magic's totally real. <laughs> like I already, I already knew it worked, but I didn't understand why and how physical it was literally. And then a physicist come along like, yeah, we're testing this now. It's a new thing where we're surprised as anyone. And, you know, then people are like, does this maybe explain hauntings or something? Like, we don't know. We're going to, you know, we're going to learn a lot in the next few years, especially like once we finally see dark matter, which will be happening soon. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for science and, and magic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, exciting. I guess all times are exciting to be living in. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What do you think is going to happen with the magical world in the, in the near future? What do you see happening? What do you think should happen? What would be healthy for us? Well, I think that it would be cool if we did move a little bit away or at least balanced some of the Aristilian perhaps thought with um, a little bit more of a introducing a little bit more comfort with like uncertainty and with I'm, I'm actually even having a hard time like finding the words for it because it's not necessarily like a thing that fits into language but like the idea of getting a little bit less away from the I guess what has become like the dogmatism of materialism, I think that that will really hopefully help us if we can do that. And like, I've heard a lot of people like talk about like, you know, trying to get back to like more of an experiential ontology mm-hmm. rather than, um, you know, relying on in, cause in some ways, like there, there's this amazing book called the flip by Jeffrey Kripal, which was recommended to me by um, Douglas Batchelor, who has an amazing show called what magic is this, but like uh, this, and in this book, Kripal talks about this a lot, but like this idea that like in some ways, like science is making or asking us to accept truth claims, which are just as um, maybe divorced from our experience as like some religious ideas are. And and this like kind of like divide that that can bring like in our consciousness between like what we think is real and what we experience as real, I think can be sort of like. That makes me think of the Eucharist. Yeah. I, I think there can, there can be some despair that can result from that if it's not like contextualized properly. So like, I think it would be cool that it, this is my fantasy. I think it would be cool if people could embrace more of the imaginal and the unseen and, you know, really sort of like allow themselves to feel like there's more magic, even if they don't believe in magic or whatever, but like feel more connected with that, like side of themselves, uh, just, just as like a general healing thing, because I think that what has happened, like it has been a little bit of a, we we see that there's like a, a bit of like a diminishing in like the strength of communities and stuff like that where and given like a lot of these old structures were sort of problematic maybe like these religious structures and stuff that like 
embodied these ideas that maybe like we're not super into anymore. Maybe some people are, I don't know. But yes, like I would like it if magic could help people feel more fucking human again. Mm. Amen. Amen to that. (laughs) Took me a while to get there. (laughs) Yeah, simple statement. (laughs) I was very lucky in grad school to be trained by Sally McFaig, who is the foremost, she's the foremost, she was, she just passed last year. Um, When I started learning with her 20 years ago, uh, she was already 72, so she uh, did good. And she was like the first dean of a university ever in the world back in the day during affirmative action and all that. She pioneered ecological theology and the idea of the world as God's body. And um, she wrote a a lot of books on metaphorical theology and models of God and her, the embodiment uh, theology was very prevalent and it was something I took to quite strongly, uh, even pushing myself beyond, I even went beyond where sort of she is as a panentheist, uh, focusing on the radical transcendence as well as radical imminence of God. And I ended up in a, in a more of a deep pantheist place, which is pretty much the same thing, except sort of just categorically different in its approach, but it gets sort of the same place, you know, um, and uh, I think magically that that's a huge thing, especially when when you consider how many people are focusing on more wonder working and thaumaturgical magic these days. And a lot of people are sort of eschewing the theurgical and self-transformational aspect that you could call the spirituality of magic. And uh, embodiment, I think, is what theurgy is all about. It's less, ra- less I-, I prefer more the metaphors of of the false self and the true self rather than the higher self and the lower self or the higher genius and the, and the ego. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, I think it's more, it's more alchemical and more accurate to the idea of us emerging of, of who we can be and as emerging and, and emphasizing our virtues and magnifying our souls by, focusing on the the higher aspects of them and uh you know like the old line my soul doth magnify the glory of the lord right we all have that glory and we can magnify it and that's why i think virtue ethics are making a big comeback these days um yeah as opposed as a con as a contrast and a foil to the good old-fashioned sin and salvation view of of uh soteriology there's one of them five dollar words soteriology (laughs) hallelujah praise the lord i love osiris can i get an amen i mean amen (laughs) Uh, that's the egyptian god yeah yeah cool this has been great anything else we should talk about oh gosh i mean I'm looking at the clock here. It seems like I'm sure there's like all kinds of things we could talk more about, but such is the nature of these types of discussions for sure. Okay. (laughs) We are back after a quick little bathroom break. Luxa, Lady Luxa. Yeah, this is, this is fun. What a great conversation. Um, You spend a lot of your time thinking. Um, I mean, I feel like I sort of spend all of my time thinking because you're always like <laughs> thinking about something, no matter what you're doing, you're still thinking. I mean, although maybe meditating, I don't know. This is 
we're getting into again semantical territory but, uh yes when i'm not trying not to think i'm thinking but mm. even trying not to think i guess is a way of thinking i don't know yeah well yeah i'm a the self-emptying practice kenosis has always been a, a, a huge thing for me and in all of the magical and spiritual practices i've engaged in like very helpful when you have a, a hyperactive uh intellectual faculty it's it's good to let that go through meditative and spiritual techniques yeah definitely there can be a lot of peace to be found in those types of things for sure yeah it's it's funny how hard some people find meditation when when you think about it it's often just repeating a single word silently over and over it's like it's 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 sort of beautifully elegant in how how challenging it can be because of its simplicity almost mm-hmm. you know I well, think yeah that, and there's mm-hmm. there's so many different ways to do it too like i do think it's like a really important practice that i would encourage everybody to engage in regularly and i mean maybe even in whatever way that like works for you like i like to use the analogy of like exercise like there's not really like a quote best workout plan like the best workout plan is the one that you'll actually do, right? Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> for sure. I, I think I, I know for sure that's why I took to ritual magic over staying in my family tradition of transcendental meditation because I was just like, there's no way my spiritual life can be composed of literally sitting in in full lotus two hours a day. Like, I just I needed more and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ritual, especially like ceremonial magic, which is memorized rubrics so that you can go through the motions while letting the rest of your faculties do other things and focus on other things because you're not making it up as you go along in, in an inspirational way. You're, you're going through the motions and that's what you want to do is you, that's when you, that's when the real work begins is once you've mastered the rubrics and the ritual and you are just going through the motions, but you are not just going through the motions. You're going through the motions and those motions are a meditation, a moving Zazen, if you will. And that does give you your spirit, this chance to uh, operate on a different level. That's sort of, from the mechanics of of that physical ritual and then the combination of the two that's it to me that makes it feel more embodied more real than when i'm just sort of transcendentalizing out of myself through sure yeah and i like i like thinking about like yeah i like thinking about ritual magic that way too because like what you're describing is almost like a sort of like choreography that involves more than just motion of the body. You know, it's a choreography of all these different faculties that culminates in this like dance that you do. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> where, where do you live in the States again? I'm, I live in Florida right now. Oh, wow. Lucky yes, you. it is. warm here it is cool but yes um maybe you could cut this out actually i don't know if this is public knowledge so (laughs) like um but yes i I do like it it's it's a much less expensive than where i was living before which is one of the main reasons we moved here as well as it not getting cold which is something that is a challenge for me 
Yeah, you guys are, I, I was saying this just uh, the other day to someone actually, like, you know, uh, in America, you're lucky. I mean, if, you, if you're if you in a cold place, you can go to a warm place and vice versa. You have a lot of options, whereas up here in Canada, you can't get, like, I'm in the warmest place, period, in Canada. And uh, <laughs> if you want warmer, if you want even just cheaper options of living, it's like we don't have, a, we don't, there's not really much you can do about that. So it's a, it's quite a quite a good thing you got going on in the states with variety at least you definitely have variety. Yes, we do. It's a it's a it's a big country with a lot of different cultures and a lot of different stuff going on depending on where you are. Uh, highly regionalistic, of course. I mean, that it would have to be in such a big place for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Learning as we go, trying to figure out this. This whole planet thing. What do you what do you think about aliens? What's up? Oh, what do you think's going on? You know, it's, I think it's very interesting. I'm very fascinated and curious about the phenomena. I've never had any encounters myself. Um, people in my family are experiencers, but they're not. Well, they don't have any strong opinions either about this. I think that. Um, I like Jacques Vallée's idea, like about because I think you sort of touched on this earlier, like the this sort of like passport to Magoni idea of like this contact with these like others being contextualized in different ways depending on like our our cultural context. So I could see that that might be a uh, something that could be going on. I don't know. Um, I do think it's interesting though that like. And this is, I don't know, this might be an unpopular opinion. I'm not really not sure. This is just something that I sort of like thought about is like, there's like a kind of interesting like mirror, I think, um, in some of like what people describe of like these like abduction scenarios. And like, I wonder too, like if there might be some kind of like an underlying um, uncomfortableness with like how we treat other animals and like, what might that be like for us if we came into contact with something that we would consider to be like a higher or more intelligent form of life? And like, I, I always thought that was sort of an interesting thing too about like, I, I don't know. I really don't know. That's the, that's my short answer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. How, what if 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 dolphins got to make up their got to be the deciders? spontaneously of the fate of the human race what do you think they would decide it would be well dolphins are very problematic i'm not sure if you're aware of this but I, they're I've very heard, yeah, i've heard the others yeah, <laughs> yeah tell, let's get into that let's get about how problematic <laughs> dolphins are <laughs> no i think it's silly to like contextualize another species behavior as problematic but i mean i think that if that happened we probably would not like the results of it i would say or we we would think that it was um coming from a completely different moralistic concept context or or maybe i don't know do other do other animals have have morals and moralistic contexts i don't know most people would probably say no but i'm not really sure like more like it could it's probably something as different as like spirits like the spirits are notoriously have uh, sometimes have a hard time relating to our our context in that way. And you but can or is that, that just like a conceit on our part? Like, are we really that different too? Like, I don't know. Well, we're, we're different. Yeah, we are. You know, sort of. I mean, like one of an interesting thing I 
recently read in was the spirit telling John D that it couldn't answer a question because it's not in a mortal body. It's just like, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't have the soul of a man, hmm. you know? So that idea of, of, of limited knowledge, it could be maybe something that's similar to just an inability to conceptualize. Like there are things we can't conceptualize. We know this. There's spectrums we can't see, right? And mm-hmm. so it can be there. If you have no, you don't even have a language for the building blocks of what you're trying to communicate, it could just be like this blank spot. You don't sure. know. You don't know to quote Taylor. And yeah, and I'm sure that like within the actual world that we live in, there's that is going on all of the time. Like our sense data, as you noted, is highly selective. So, yes. Uh, uh. I, uh, the most interesting part of aliens more than like uh, encounters and UFOs to me are actually like the crop circles. Like it seems to me like something's really communicating. Yeah, there. That I do think it's interesting. There like, have been many of them questions. have... Yeah, no, and just <laughs> I do have to call out though that like many of them have been like you know people have been like yes we made these let, let me show you how like we stood here and we swung yeah, a rope around and like guys who did that they got debunked though because really okay yeah, well, this is not... yeah they <laughs> okay. were questions. yeah they were debunked no they they didn't make any really okay there, there are a few forgeries around but not the big story one that everyone always cites because when they were questioned on the ones they made they were questioned on on ones that they didn't realize had occurred in Australia on the same weekend as the ones they were taking credit for in England. And they're like, yes, we did make those ones as well. And they're like, they're in Australia. How'd you get? Oh, okay. Okay. And also the fields where they appear most often, the farmers will tell you they're they're, they They walk home at sunset across the fields and there's nothing there. And 4am they get up and there they are. There's no way to have man-made those so quickly unless some strange technology we're not we don't know we have yeah you know i don't know you obviously know more about this than i do i I never really looked at it and during it's during quarantine was when i first even looked into aliens for really the first time ever seriously you know and i found out what QAnon was and was like oh jesus christ and i even made like i was taking the piss out of it all the time on my podcast i would do this this is what i would do i'd be like um i'd be like lux just one sec will we take a quick commercial commercial break this podcast is brought to you and sponsored by adrenochrome get your two-for-one adrenochrome today use code epstein thanks very much and back to the podcast so moving on where were we so like okay, i would do stuff I'm, like I'm, that like, to be honest like wait I'm, I'm so lost because like is a are aliens involved in the the QAnon conspiracy. They're like living below uh, the earth and the flat earth, and they're going to come up from the tunnels and devour all of all of the humans on on like a special day. I read that. That was one. That was one 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 of the things. Okay, yeah. you know, before things got so bad, I used to love coming up with ridiculous conspiracy theories because it was so fun and silly. It got too. But now I can't even do it anymore because there's going to be some poor person out there that will think that it's serious, and then something horrible will happen. Yeah, well, it's very sad. It really is. Like I just, it's it is. It's just really, um, it's really sad. I know a lot of people are are searching for meaning, and I think that this is one of those, uh, you know, manifestations that we see of like, you know, people have lost this. Uh, you know, we're we're not like 
thinking about things in terms of like religion anymore for better or worse. Right. But there is still this like psychological framework there that can be manipulated. Unfortunately, if you're not, if you're not going to take charge of it, somebody else might. For sure. Um, um, I'm, I'm reading my, the best biography on Crowley I've ever read. Um, and I'm not a, I'm, I'm quite, quite harsh on Crowley. I'm more, I'm, I'm team Yates. Uh, when it comes to that street fighter fight, um, <laughs> that's how I imagine their relationship. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it'd be a battle of words, of course. And it, when you, cause they both fundamentally considered themselves poets, even before magicians, they both did. And I think, I think, uh, the better one is, is, is not who Crowley thought it's the one who got the, you know, Nobel prize. For yes. It. Yeah. God Crowley's, bless Crowley's poetry while hilarious. <laughs> that, that, that fabulous, strange character, uh, just, yeah, he was, he was better, way better at a lot of other things than he, he was, he was probably a better mountain climber than he was a poet. Yes. Well, poetry art is very subjective. I mean, we all love I, Iopan, Iopan, however you say it, right? Like that's, that. that's, who doesn't love it? <laughs> when, I, when I was 13 going through puberty, puberty, that was my jam. I was obsessed. Iopan. I was like, <laughs> right? that around and the lies and telling everyone that zero equaled two. And, uh, you know, and yeah. I was at a gathering a while back with some folks that were um, maybe like a little bit more I guess you could say like socially conservative than me. And and somebody was like, I'm going to read this poem now about Pan. It's by Crowley. And like, you could sort of tell that like they hadn't really like thought it through because like, as they're reciting this poem and this company, like everybody is getting more and more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it was the funniest fucking thing I've wow. ever seen. <laughs> as, like, as, as the poem continues on and it gets hornier and hornier and hornier. And like, <laughs> <laughs> it was delicious it's so funny <laughs> that is awesome uh, um when i was 15 uh i memorized howl by ginsburg and so i was reciting it hundreds and hundreds of times to get it down and then i delivered it uh for my grade 11 class as a book report instead of a book report i memorized Howl, which took forever and the, this the kids were joking that it was funny to hear me wandering around woodshop class like reciting you know uh, cocks and balls and endless lays in night cart. You know, I'd sing all these profane words over and over because they knew what I was doing, but they really loved the presentation at the very end. It's a 45 minute poem. And uh, that was before I was saying that because of uh, what was it? Yeah, the shockingness of the poetry and the words. They can, it's like in invocations actually, where some of the most important things I find in the invocations that I've learned and used that were written by like, Alan Bennett and other Golden Dawn people, and just even older ones, like going back to the earliest ones, it's sometimes it's the it's the awkward, um, you know, the the unexpected phrases, the uh, the 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 strange the strange turns of phrase that that deny expectation uh, or the seizures, like you know, especially to use a popular word from that we know from Name of the Wind, right? His sword is called seizure, which is a wonderful term, poet poetry term that defines a, a sudden break midline midverse mm-hmm. um you know usually with a period but yeah yeah so, definitely what was i saying oh that, that weed went to my head and, uh, 
I, to be honest, it's getting a little bit late where I am. I should probably go kind yeah. of starting to get a little tired. Yeah, but to finish the point about the crop circles, it's like I, I really, I really, uh, when I looked into it, that seemed what to be was the most uh, overlooked and fascinating and inexplicable part of the alien phenomenon. And I really hope we we learn more about that. So if you hear anything, let me know. I'm I'm deep into it. And my next time I do a series of DMT experiments, it's going to be using. Um, different uh, uh crop circles as sigils for guiding the experience interesting yeah i mean they definitely do look you know significant in terms of their symbology that is there like i think they're that sounds like a fascinating experiment i would be curious to hear about that yeah wow hey we did almost three hours there look at that <laughs> for us what a what a great talk i'm so glad we, we yes well, thank you so much. Like, I, I've definitely enjoyed talking with you about all this stuff for sure. Yeah, cool. Um, do you want to do the whole spiel again about where people can find you and support your podcast and all that? Yeah, um, you can listen to the Lux Occult podcast wherever pods are cast. Um, you can learn more about the Green Mushroom Hypho Sigil Project. Uh, Hypho means web. Um, you can learn about that. Um, from the podcast or looking at the show notes, or you can check out the Faith Blind Council Discord server where we are organizing. You can hear my brother and I talk about history on the Ad Hoc History podcast. Yeah, I can't wait um, to check you, that out. Yes, it's very fun. You can follow my shit on Instagram at Pod, where you can see news about the show and stuff. I also have a like kind of mashup art magic food porn uh, project that I have going on at the mimetic disease on Instagram. That's a little bit more of like the artistic occulty stuff, um, getting away from just, you know, talking about the podcast. And there is also a Instagram account for the green mushroom project at hypho sigil. So mm. check that shit out. Um, I wouldn't recommend that you listen to it, but my friends and I do a very embarrassing comedy, like sex comedy podcast called Smuts Up. Um, it's garnered such high as praise as chaotic or unlistenable. So <laughs> be sure to check that out. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, and yeah, just besides that, I've, you can hit me up at uh, luxacultpod at gmail.com if you want to email me. So yes. Wunderbar, Madame. Dankeschön. <laughs> <Day Madame. laughs> it's a wonderful time in history to be a white dude that speaks German, eh? Yeah, how fabulous. Nonsprechen Sie Deutsch. Yeah, I should learn French. Oh, well. Um, thanks for taking the time and, and doing this. This is fucking awesome. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. Huge honor to be on the show and everything. And um, I can't wait to hear your Enochian episode next. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's, I, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to Cliff. Um, it was a great conversation. Like so many of the other ones I've had, I've been so lucky to like meet so many cool, uh, interesting people and stuff. So, I mean, I was going to say, if you wouldn't mind maybe coming on my show, you could talk about some of the ceremonial stuff that you're into or something like that. Yeah, 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 especially once I've uh, digested all your episodes because, cool. uh, yeah, that, let's do that. Yes, I, that's that's perfect because I am... Once I read your bio. <laughs> in terms of production, I'm like way behind and shit, so it might be a little while, but yes, I would love that. <laughs> People are expecting someone who just hits record and then and then the, you do more than just hit record and record that stuff. You, 
you have prepared prepared stuff prepared quotes and you do sound and music in the background somehow so so yeah it's not like you're you're doing pretty great, I'd say. It sounds thank you. Good. Yeah. Thank and, you so uh, much. Yeah. It's just it really is like for it too, I think. Oh, thank you. I mean, and each, you know, each episode is sort of like its own operation, right? So like I want to make sure that I like get everything in place. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. See, yeah. That's that's great. Awesome. You're you're awesome. Uh say hi to uh you know the America for me. <laughs> Hello, all of you. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, because I can, you know, obviously it's reduced to a single unit. Yeah. Well, say say hello to Canada for me then. I will. (laughs) For all of Canada, um, especially the First Nations and Indigenous people, uh, they put their trust in me. (laughs) Okay. Okay. No. Uh, Uh, What? No, I'm making it. Okay. Yes, we don't represent our countries. We are, we are every, we're just individual stars. Every man and woman is a star. Yeah, nobody can choose like where they're born or what body they're born into or anything like that. All you can choose is like what you do with your life. Though some spiritual traditions are convinced that we decide that, that actually I grew up being told that we decide that. So that that, that can lead to some major problems um, theologically. Which we'll talk about next time. Yeah, like sure. I mean, and I think that like with the Indian past reincarnation system, you were born to be a poor person. You karmically and legally don't have the right to change your caste. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. That obviously it's hugely problematic, right? Like because it's just saying like, oh, well, this is your fault. Yeah. It's, kind, it's kind of like the idea of original sin. Like it's your <laughs> fault for sucking so much because you're human or whatever. I don't know. Right. Like, uh, she told traumatic. me to it. You dumb fuck. <laughs> and not, obviously not to like disparage other people's beliefs, but like it's, there's a lot of things that we could, a lot of questions that we could ask about that for sure. Well, I can't wait till next time, my friend. What a pleasure. <laughs> yes. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Done. Clicked off. That was great. Hell yeah. Very fun. Thank you so much. (laughs) No, no, there. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.com co.uk that's hermetic science enterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know i've uh, talked with the publisher lenny on the podcast before including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the patreon and uh seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of scott's discovery of witchcraft which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.